and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is not Dave Kale welcoming you to the most recent uh, session of Sim Film, where today we are going to be going, I believe, through the remainder of the script outlines right. for season two, which is very exciting. I am Trish Lambert, and our, our wonderful third co-host, Dave Kale, is not with us today because he's being a daddy. Um, Wally Kale, uh, Baby Kale, has had, he said, a rough week this week. He's convinced it's because he's developing new cognitive abilities, which is That's Dave's right. specialty. That's right. So, of course, he would be thinking that. <laughs> but I am joined by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, as always. And we also have our script outline team lead, um, Nick Palazzo, with us today. So, welcome, you guys. That's right. Thanks. Thanks. Howdy. Happy to be here. And, of course, uh, 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 Marie Prosser is also with us, though non uh, audibly, as always. So she'll be she'll be pitching into the discussion as we go through the outlines. Welcome. All right, I am excited. I've been so much enjoying these uh, these sessions where we're going through the episode outlines. It's been a great overview of the whole season. It's so easy for me to lose touch of the season. Of course, indeed, I say lose touch. By the time we get to episode thirteen, I can barely usually even remember anything about what we said about episode one, so it's been great to go back through uh, and see the shape of the whole season. Um, so I'm looking forward to uh, Doubtless uh, with confidence and aplomb getting all the way through episode 13 today. Uh, but before we do that, I want to make a, a brief announcement because uh, there's something really fun coming up. Uh, Signum and Mythgard are doing a really new, are doing a fun new thing this summer, which uh, is a kind of thing that we've never done before, uh, and I think it's going to be really cool. Um, we are holding a camp, a Tolkien camp for middle schoolers. Um, this is a hybrid camp, so it is. Uh, we're we're transmitting it online, of course, as we usually do with our normal stuff. Um, but it's going to be a hybrid experience because we're partnering with local libraries. So you see what we're doing. This is called the Hobbit Immersion Camp, is what it's called. Uh, it's going to be a two-week camp in July, starting on the week of July 10th. So it'll be those two weeks, the week of July 10th and the week of July 17th. And uh, in those two weeks, kids are going to be reading The Hobbit about two chapters a day. They're going to have daily uh, sessions, on, live online sessions uh, with a teacher. I'm not going to be the head teacher on this. The head teacher on this is experienced middle school teacher, uh, experienced teacher of Tolkien to middle schoolers, Dime Binkley from Alaska, a longtime Signum student who has been teaching uh, an intensive uh, Tolkien literature elective. Uh, in her middle school for uh, for for over a decade, uh, with some really really cool results. So um, she's going to be running the course. I'll be kind of moonlighting uh, a couple times, doing some Q and As and stuff with the kids. But we're so we're, we're, we're we'll have daily. They'll, they'll read the chapters every day. We'll have the daily sessions, and then there will also be opportunities for kids to get together in groups. And work on some projects. Dime has them doing a bunch of, uh, of of interactive projects and sort of you know keeping their own Hobbit journals and stuff like that as they they kind of you know work their way imaginatively through the book and think about it and discuss it together. Um, so this is going to be a really really fun. Uh, uh, project. I'm, you know, we've never done anything for for kids this age before. Oh, and I should mention, it's completely free, right? So that no charge either to the libraries or to the kids uh, to be involved in this program. Um, so yeah, it's called the it's called the Hobbit Immersion Camp, uh, and uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a really great time. Um, 
in order for us to make it completely free, however, um, I, I, I wanted, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing a fundraising event to raise money to support the Hobbit Immersion Camp. Um, it's not going to be a really expensive uh, endeavor, um, but we do want, I do want to make sure that we do support it so that we don't end up so that we can basically make it as uh, as broad as we can, so we can you know make sure to extend it to as many people as as would like to be involved. Um, but without, uh, uh, without, <laughs> without hampering the rest of Signum's operations. Um, so what I'm going to do is in two weeks, two weeks from tomorrow, uh, which of course two weeks from tomorrow is an auspicious day. That is March 25th, which is of course Gondorian New Year. Uh, that is the day that the ring was cast into the fire and, we're going to celebrate Gondorian New Year with a fundraising event. I'm going to do another Lotro Marathon. I'm going to do a Lotro Marathon from noon to 8 p.m. again, as I have done in the past. And I'm going to take my main character, Wigand, and I'm going to go as far through Rohan as possible. Trish, do you think I could get to the Battle of Helm's Deep in one day from where I am? From where you are? Yeah, you should be able to, I think. Yeah? We just, but the thing is, we would just you would just have to uh, kinda, follow the quest line, the epic line. Fo- yeah. Follow the epic line. Anyway, that, that, that's what I would really like. I would really like to be able to get through the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, you probably need to do some some of the quest line between now and then, actually. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do a little bit. I'll research and see where you should get to. Yeah. yeah. I'll research yeah. and see where you should be at um, as far as, you know, doing and then getting to Helm's Deep. Uh, Helm's Deep. You're going to have to do, to get to Helm's Deep, you'll have to do the epic battles. That's oh, part yeah. of doing yeah. the epic quest Yeah, that's going to be fun. So. I'm looking forward to the epic yeah. battles, which I've never really <laughs> done at all before. So that'll be cool. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so so that'll be so, so that'll be really great. So you can you can plan to join me. We'll be on the Signum U Twitch channel. Um, so uh, uh, you can plan to join me in two weeks uh, for that marathon. We'll be we'll be raising money to support uh, our our. Tolkien education program for for kids and if you're interested in 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 getting involved if you think if you might like to see you know a chapter of the hobbit camp at your local library um there's an opportunity for you to get involved so here's here's what you do go to the signum university website scroll down just a little bit to the events section and you'll see an events page uh for this if you go to that events page um you can click on the button and download a pdf flyer that you can uh, print out and hand to your local librarian, and it will give them all the information that they need about what this program is and how they can partner with us and how they can contact us and everything. So you can uh, you can kind of be the ambassador for this program to your local library, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll 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 see what we can do. And we've I've talked with some librarians already, and uh, uh, and that's been uh, and that's been really good. Halstein, I don't have a a donation page uh, sort of dedicated to this setup yet. I'll be I'll be working on that in this coming week. Um, but there's certainly you can go to the signumuniversity.org page uh, and make a donation there the, uh, the, at the, on the main Signum page uh, the, the button on the far right of the menu is our donate button and we certainly do have the uh, donation our general donation page there yeah so uh, see Karita's already contacted two libraries so see there you are Karita you're right we should have uh, some kind of recognition for you know the uh, 
the person who 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 brings in the most libraries to this. I have to say, Karita, I've got two already, also. So I'm I'm uh, I'm tied with you right now. So we'll see. And Ruth, absolutely, you can join from the UK. Um, one great thing, Ruth, about this is that the broadcasts will be during the day, so it won't be. You know, I won't be broadcasting at three o'clock in the morning, as I so often do. You know, th- three o'clock three o'clock in the morning, of course, for you guys over there in the UK. Um, I don't think we've. Uh, We've decided exactly on what time of day the the daily uh, uh, Hobbit broadcasts will be. Of course, they'll be recorded and available to participants asynchronously as well, as usual. But um, the live broadcasts will be, I believe, sometime uh, in the late morning or early afternoon. Of course, they're being broadcast, uh, Ruth, from Alaska. So the time difference between you and Dime, the teacher, is something like 11 hours or something like that. So it's going to be a little bit challenging. But I think I think we should still probably be able to uh, to, 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 to to make it work out. Um, uh, but. Uh, oh, great. Awesome. Yeah, Susan, um, why don't you Susan, could you send me an email about that? Um, Susan Cormier was just a. Uh, uh, pointing out some connections that she has with uh, the state library system in Connecticut. Awesome. Yeah. Send me an email and we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can get that. We can get that sort of put out there. That'd be, that'd be cool. Um, but uh, yeah, excellent. Okay. Cool. So anyway, this is going to be a really fun thing. So, so, so join me for the fundraiser. Um, you know, we're, we're really excited about, you know, I've, I've wanted to kind of do programs like this. And by the way, it doesn't have to be just libraries. If there are any other, you know, uh, the idea of course, is that we'd like to ha- sort of build community groups. One of my thoughts in doing this program is that, you know, I mean, as, as, as you guys know, you know, Mythgard and Signum programs are, 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 are always online programs. Everything we do is online with the exception of our of our regional and national conferences, um, such as Mythmoot coming up soon. Plug plug. But um, the 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 this pro, for this program, you know, really targeting ten to thirteen year olds, which is really the sort of the group that we're trying to reach out to with this with this project. It, that's a little bit more challenging, and I, I really felt from the beginning and talking with Dime about how we would do this that we really wanted there to be some kind of a you know, flesh and bone in-person contact, as well as just the online engagement uh, for kids. It's certainly possible for kids to be involved individually. I mean, if, if, if you're just somewhere, you know, and you want with your kids to be involved in your own home, I have no objection to that. We're not going to exclude folks in that way. But we really thought it would be an even more effective program if we were able to build these kind of community centers where the kids who are involved in the program can get together and have some group time where they can talk talk about The Hobbit together, um, where they can work on their journals and their projects together. Um, so uh, anyway, so that's why we have it sort of uh, uh, sort of set up this way. Um, so uh, if you... Um, uh, if you go, if you so as I said, you can you can download the flyer and you can print it and send it out. Oh yeah, that's that was the other thing I was going to say. So it's 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 libraries are kind of the the primary group that I sort of had in mind uh, for it, um, and the primary people that we've been approaching. But it doesn't have to be libraries. Um, if you have, for instance, if you're part of a if you're part of a homeschool co-op or uh, or something like that, um, then you know you would be you would be very welcome to. Uh, uh, to you know, email us and talk about getting involved with that. So, 
There we go. Um, all right. Um, very good. So I will... Um, that's our announcement. Excellent. Um, okay. Everybody still there? Can everybody hear me all right? Yep. Okay, good. Wanted to make sure. Yep. Uh, um, I was having issues. Just trying to give a link and having issues reaching the website. So wanted to make sure that nothing was wrong with my internet. Um, so, okay. The Signum website seems to be having That's what I was just noticing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, great. Okay. Note to self. Send message to our website people to figure out what's wrong with the website. Um, yep. Exactly. That is precisely what I was just discovering. So let me do a quick thing here, which is just upload the flyer directly to you guys as a handout so that you guys who are listening live can... Have those of you who are listening asynchronously will doubtless be able to uh, uh, will doubtless be able to boy my the handouts thing is not working either what is wrong with everything all of a sudden this is why this is what makes me paranoid that it's me but I don't think so okay fine well I can't do the handout either alright anyway it'll be there um and uh, we'll certainly get the website fixed here soonish. Fine, never mind. Let's move on and talk about the episodes. So, uh, epi- oh yes, and thank you, Marie, for reposting that. So, for those of you who have not gotten to see the episode outlines, I just wanted to post to you a link um, of where you can find those things. So this is the link to the page on the the Some Film Discussion Forums where you can find the PDF file of the episode outlines uh, for 9 to 13. Um, you just have to go to the the script. Uh, it's the the script subforum, right? Is that is that what it's called? believe uh yes yeah. yes i mean it's a little hard to say right now since we can't actually get to it um <laughs> yeah exactly here i am posting links to things that we can't actually see yeah um so. no idea what is wrong there well anyway okay carrying on um okay so but again especially for those who are listening later on if you go to uh, uh go to the go to the forums and you can click on the script subforum, and and that you can find the script discussion, uh, the the episodes nine through thirteen outlines. Okay, I'll put a I'll put a a, a link in my status there, so that it'll cool. be easier to find. Cool. All right. Well, let's talk about episode nine. So we're starting with episode nine, which is the making of the Silmarils and going through the darkening of Valinor. One general thing that I really wanted to um, uh, that I really wanted to emphasize at the beginning, uh, I think you guys are doing great. I felt like you guys really kind of got your stride as the as the season went on. Uh, these final episodes, uh, I, I thought the the outlining was just really at a different level. Uh, than at the beginning. You know, there were a bunch of times in the earlier episodes in particular 
where, you know, you, you remember a couple sessions ago, you know, when I was like, well, so here are my series of questions and things that I want to think about more, and I'm not sure how this works and all that stuff. And I have really very, few, very many fewer issues of that kind uh, to talk about today because these are really good. I really, really enjoyed these. And I think that, you know, as a whole, I mean, there are like a couple sort of nitpicky-ish things here and there that I have to... to to, to kind of talk about or that I want to ask questions about. Um, but on the whole, I think as a story, this really flows really well. So great job with that. Were you, were you, were you feeling better? How was your experience in kind of going through the script outlines for the season? These were way harder, actually. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the episodes that we're on right now are definitely the more difficult ones that we have to deal with. Um, in in part because you know there were there were issues that were created uh, when we shifted from the the, narr- the narrative and the text um, that we then had to figure out how to how to fix when we put it into an episode structure. Um, so, for example, um, episode episode ten. Um, we had we, well episode episode twelve was actually the one I was the most concerned about. Um, but um, the feast of reconciliation, right? Because yeah. when we when we didn't see what was happening behind the scenes over in episode eleven, it you know we had to make sure that we weren't having a lot of conversations where you know that thing that we ha- that happened a while ago. Let me tell you about the things that you know about. <laughs> right. Um, so we had to avoid that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's it seems to me that there were a lot of places where the passage of time also becomes challenging. Um, I thought you guys were really inventive in how y- y- you seem to rely primarily uh, you, the the your. Your favorite mechanism for conveying the passing of time seems to be like weddings, basically. <laughs> you know, like the, the 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 sort of social development of the different sub characters. You know, Galadriel is a no child. I take responsibility for the plethora of weddings. Right? Yeah. No, the weddings are good. the weddings are good. Right? I mean, because it accomplishes two things. Right? On the one hand, it shows you like, hey, so like little Turgon isn't a kid anymore. He's he's getting married. He's grown up. Time has passed. Um, but of course, it also helps to introduce characters. Like, hey, Turgon has a wife, and later he's got a kid. You know, so uh, right. uh, we, you know, you're introduced uh, to Idril. I love the the sort of the cameo by Idril at the feast. By the way, I thought that was really neat. Um, so, uh, and and it's it's true. Mike points out there could have been many more weddings. It's true. I, I think you were you were uh, you were you were restrained in the number of weddings uh, that you yes. did. Yeah, Karina says it's all her fault and she's not sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, for... I mean, one, one of the things was, to, the one of the challenges there was to make sure that all the weddings were a little different um, because, I mean, how exceptionally boring is that going to be if we just see a wedding after wedding after wedding and they're all exactly the same? So you have the wedding way back at the beginning of the season between Finway and Muriel, and that is done in a, that's more of almost like a tribal style wedding, right, in right, a way. Right. Um, then 
you have the wedding between Finway and Indus, which should have all this pomp and circumstance because he's the king, but it's actually kind of a small wedding because people are a little bit uncomfortable about what's going on. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, well, and it's a second wedding, right? It's always kind of, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, then you have the wedding between Feanor and, and Nerdanel, which it, you know, which kind of goes according to plan more or less, but better. Right, right. Um, and then, you know, and then you have a wedding where where Feanor breaks in with Simarils, you know, so, like, you had to have different things happening in all of these crazy weddings. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was great. I loved it. Um, Plus, I mean, one of the things we can also do with that is to show, remember how we talked about that is the longer the Noldor stay in Valinor, like, they get more jewelry and right. fancy in their dress and stuff, so the weddings could also reflect that, you know, in their in their sort of the richness of their look as time goes by. Yeah, that does provide a really interesting kind of visual touchstone, doesn't it? And of course, you know, Nick, as you were saying, the different circumstances of the different weddings, um, you know, are kind of peculiar in some ways, like the, especially the Finway in this wedding. Um, you know, that one is clearly not just another wedding. But yeah, I, 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 I do think that that's a great point, Trish, that just sort of the silent point that can be established by how the, the guests dress basically and adorn themselves can can really sort of show some changes so yeah that's cool um but no i i i really did like i really did like that technique um and uh and again and you know the 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 introduction of characters that we met as kids like galadriel seeing seeing galadriel become an adult uh over the course of the season uh is sort of interesting and 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 helps but but yeah no that was clearly uh, that was clearly a challenge um and uh, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, Tony points out is you know it's, it's like the opposite of Game of, of Game of Thrones, where weddings always signal tragedy, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, have weddings and because those are like the only uh, the only festivals where like nobody comes and and disrupts them, right? You know where Balrogs well, never attack during weddings. Is... Oh well, except that one, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Elven weddings, though so far the elven weddings are good. Um, but uh, yeah, cool. Except for the ones that Feanor ruins. <laughs> well, but even that one is not the same. I mean, of course, it's not exact. You know, Feanor is still not quite as bad as a horde of Balrogs. But um, talk about damning with faint praise, though, right? Feanor not quite as bad as a horde of Balrogs. Um, <laughs> Yeah, one other uh, kind of general issue that I wanted to to talk about, though. The frame. So, I was particularly struck, uh, and this has been something that's been happening all season, but I haven't really talked about it because I didn't really think about it that much. But it, for some reason, obtruded itself much more upon my notice uh, in these later episodes. Um, The... Well, I guess what I want to talk about is sort of the framishness, or rather the unframishness of the frame. Um, that basically, the way that we're treating the frame, especially the way that we're coming in and out of it, even in the midst of episodes, uh, right? Um, the tendency in all of these latter episodes, as they're outlined, is to to start them, you know, to have like the teaser opening scene uh, be a, a Valinorian scene, you know, a first stage scene, and then we start the episode with a frame scene usually. We sometimes interject a frame scene into the middle, 
right? Or we will sort of segue, um, presumably after a commercial break or something, uh, into uh, though I guess really not. I think we should t- obviously we should be planning uh, this series for like when the Netflix model has clearly taken over the entertainment world as it is long overdue to have done. So uh, no commercial breaks. Um, the way to go. Clearly, clearly. Um, I have been like side note. That's been something I've been actively waiting for, for over 10 years. And I'm really, really glad that finally Netflix has like flipped the switch and made this happen. Um, but anyhow, so, okay. Uh, so yeah. So, but again, the frame, um, and one thing that is really clear when looking at the frame is that it's not really a frame, technically. It's a, it's a parallel sub-story. It's a, parallel, it's a third age parallel sub-story, essentially. Um, that is to say, in, ep- in season one, right, we actually had the frame as a frame. That is, it was, it, you know, w- we weren't necessarily going to belabor, you know, voiceovers and have every episode, including Elrond sitting down to tell a story. But there was still the sense that what we were telling was the story that was surrounding the actual narration of stories, right? Um, and that was the sense in which it was, re- it was truly a frame. Um, in episode... In season two, especially, we kind of started that way a little bit. Like, Celeborn's going to tell a story about how things were, right, at Quiviannon. When Arwen is upset and, you know, the whole, like, it's been this way from the beginning. And then we have at least the implication that Celeborn is able to tell this story, especially since Celeborn is present in that first story. Um, So we sort of started off that way. But as the season has gone on, it seems to be more and more leaving the concept of frame, that is the idea that the stories, the first age stories, are being told within the context of the third age stories. And I'm, when I'm saying this, I don't know if I dislike that or not. Um, I mean, to me, the essential function of the frame, like the what I love about the frame concept, I love the way... Um, the, if I had to, if I had to point to the number one thing that I that I think makes the frame concept awesome, it is the way in which it draws our attention to the relationship between story within story. The, the way that it draws the our attention to like the connection with history. The way that the Lord of the Rings story, the Third Age story, is a story which is intimately connected with the First Age story. These are not just two stories that happened at different points in time. Um, the idea that basically Sam Gamgee's insight, right? We're, you know, bless me, we're in the same tale still, right? That to me is what the frame is all about. And I think that it works really well. We still establish that really well in the frame, even as it's done in an, in a non-framish manner here in season two, by showing you know, Arwen is is grappling with the same things that you know the elves, you know the the, the Noldor in the period of their unrest were sort of grappling with uh, some more constructively than others. Um, so I mean, I I like the way in which it shows, and of course that that connection of course is most focused on Galadriel herself who is especially in the second half of the season there present you know by the end of the season she's there present as an adult in both places right um and we can see her dealing with there's even the one I forget which one it is episode 11 maybe where we sort of end with uh uh 
adult Galadriel pondering in the first age the same things that we will see adult Galadriel pondering in the third age, right? Um, though, you know, obviously from a slightly different perspective uh, at that point. So, again, I love that. I mean, and, and, and I think that, that showing that connection, showing the, the intimacy of the connection between the ancient history stories and the present stories to give the third age context with the characters that everybody's familiar with as 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 a kind of point of contact for the Silmarillion stories and to contextualize them and demonstrate um the their significance in the larger you know story of Middle Earth. I think it's great. I think it works really well. I love doing it. I just want to make sure that we don't shift in a direction like this accidentally and not notice when it when it goes by and i want to i want to make sure that we're okay leaving the frame thing behind because of course one downside of doing it this way is it might just seem weird like how do we signal um to you know like oh and by the way we're now talking about chronological shifts right we now turn away from our first age story and interject a scene from you know with arwen and galadriel um sort of out of nowhere. I mean, you know, wanting to make sure we can handle those transitions, that it's not going to be too jarring and difficult for viewers to follow uh, and all that. that. That seems a more obvious challenge when we're not actually having a storytelling context. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few things going on there as well. For example, um, you know, one of the things when we, when we tackled this frame, you know, we kind of knew that Arwen's already got to know most of these stories. Mm-hmm. You know, it's possible that she doesn't have a precise perspective. Like to her, it's it, you know, it's ancient history. It all happened long before she was born, right? Um, and so Galadriel and Celeborn were there, right? Um, but whether in you know twenty something thousand, twenty something hundred years, right? Um, they they haven't gotten around to because you, you remember you mentioned how it you know it seems strange that Galadriel hasn't gotten around to talking to the Galadrim about the Valar <laughs> about the Valar yes right it, similarly it, it seems it would seem a little strange that they haven't expressed their perspective or she hasn't asked them for their perspective on these events so once again it's kind of it, it it kind of stretches into that as you know kind of territory right right for them to be telling her these stories they could be reminding her of things you know right. or they could be right. saying things you exactly. know like the, the implication in the in the first episode where Celeborn is is talking about stuff that happened back at Quivenin he's in, He's not sitting down and telling her the whole story. He's just reminding her of a couple of things that he experienced that she already knows about. Yeah, yes. he's just bringing them. To, he's giving her like a quick refresher. Right. Right. Exactly. And that th- that that seems exactly like the kind of context in which it's perfectly appropriate to do a remember you've been told this story, but let me remind you of its relevance to your current situation. Like that's basically the context of that conversation at the beginning, right? You know, not a. Right. Uh, for some reason, I've never told you about Quivienen and the Dark Rider, and that's a story I think you need to know, despite the fact you've been alive for a long time right. and have had plenty of time to hear this before. Um, yeah, no, I agree with that, um, and 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 I so I agree in that way. Certainly, the the sort of education of young Aragorn lent itself to a more traditional frame content concept, right? Because he did need to hear these stories for the first time, but. 
this is, I agree with that, more awkward to, to, to do that more rigorously. Um, Marie was asking, would we prefer the frame to stay at the beginning and the end of the episode structurally? I guess, Marie, it's not like I have a super strong opinion about that. It's not, you know, it's not like I think that that's an absolute necessity. I guess what, all I would say is that obviously makes it easier for the viewers, right, to contextualize. Um, but I don't want to say we absolutely must stick with that as long as we can as long as we can make it clear, you know, as long as the, as there's a kind of a rationale, because I'm trying to think of, have, I'm trying to think of other examples. Have I ever seen a story doing that? Like we will see, obviously it's, it's, it's quite common to be popping from one storyline to another. Um, uh, but from a past to a future story like that is much more unusual. Um, you know, unless you're unless you're doing like a time travel <laughs> story, essentially, yeah. you know, uh, which we're not. Uh, well, it, in a way, it's kind of almost um, it's it's and I'm not a huge fan of the show, but it's kind of almost once upon a time in a way where we're showing stories that are happening in this separate world um, with with some of the same characters that are in the world that that is framing this. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Once Upon a Time. I haven't, no. It's, it's not great. There's some interesting things about it, and they do some interesting stuff, but um, it it's, appears like it's trying to be a children's show for adults, which is, mm-hmm. I don't really get. Um, but anyway, <laughs> right. the, uh, the important thing I'm trying to express here is that you know, it, it's okay to be to be doing what we're doing, and I think that the problem is going to be if somebody comes into the show midway. Like, right. are we thinking about our, our our random person who turns on the television and and is and is watching this show for the first time? Now, especially if, if they're not familiar with Tolkien. Net- right, right, right. Now, if we are in the Netflix kind of context, that's not really going to happen. Right. As much, right? You know, people are going to start from the beginning, and they're going to watch the whole thing, right? So, I I don't know that we necessarily Netflix model, but sorry, yes, exactly. I'm not not so concerned about the person coming in midway, but I am concerned about, as we have talked about with the frame, there's a story arc to the frame as well as there is to the to the main story piece, and you know, while we may not necessarily need a beginning and end every single you know book ending every single time, and in fact, I don't necessarily you know what's wrong with having the conversation between Arwen and Gladriel and Celeborn happen midway. You know, if it works right. script-wise, right. they could certainly interrupt. I do think we need to maintain that, though. You know, I think we need to maintain there's a story there. You know, there's a story arc where we start, if we're still doing it, we start out with Arwen questioning the whole, you know, why are we leaving Middle-Earth thing to where she re- reaches a resolution on that question at the end of the season. So, you know, the story, the frame is 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 doing more than storytelling. And I do agree that we can't do a storytelling like we did the first season, but I do think there's some way to present the frame, you know, maybe like you're saying the, the once upon a time kind of thing, you know, where it's, they're not so much telling the story as maybe just referring to it. Well, you know, cause our, you know, Arwen can bring stuff up, right. you know, relative to that, you know, what about when this happened, you know, doesn't that prove my point? You know, I don't know exactly what that would be, but in other words, it doesn't have to be a storytelling thing. It can be just simply something that they're talking about that then we fade to the story. Um, you know, but I do think we need to have it there. Yeah. 
Well, like for example, in episode eight, which we talked about last uh, last time, we months ago, you know, um, right? When we talked about episode eight, that frame it, it it lends itself to a parallel story rather than um, than a a refresher course uh, course in the trial of Melkor. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, you know, so like, us, they, what it, was the frame in episode eight? So what was that? I was think that what we Arwen... discussed. Right, uh, um, there. You know, Golem's attacking the the uh, the woodsman. Um, right, right. Yeah, the Golem. She goes out to help, and it. Yeah. yeah, and they're suspicious of her at first. She wins them over. Right, right. And so on and so on. But the right. it, um, to to kind of parallel Melkor doing the same thing, which that would never work if you were just you know if if it were if somebody were actually actively referencing that, because nobody's going to be like, hey, Arwen, this is kind of like when Melkor, it's not. <laughs> right, right. It, it, it would utterly change the dynamics to have somebody really doing that. But yeah, no, I agree. Right. I agree. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a great example. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of, it, it's kind of the, the bed we've made in, in choosing this frame, which we can work with. It's just, we kind of have to be aware of the fact that it's going to be very different than the frame before. Right, right. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, again, I don't object to it. I just want to make sure that we're c- yeah. careful in thinking through it. Because um, I do really see, especially since it's, I think it's it's very easy to lose sight of, like, for non-Tolkien prose, right? You know, if, if for people who know the books inside and out aren't going to have a problem with this. Like, as soon as they see Arwen, they'll know where they are, right? But that's not true of everybody. Um, and I, I I, think we just need to make sure that we are sending really clear signals. I could imagine somebody watching this and getting really... Since there's no clear story... Uh, you know, th- th- There's no clear storytelling transition, right? Uh, to uh-huh. indicate the relationship between scene number one and scene number two, you know, in a, in a given episode, um, or again, when it kind of pops up in the middle, I could easily imagine somebody getting really confused. Like who the heck, goodness knows there are enough elves to keep track of. And I'm supposed to remember, wait, which one of these elves are like far in the future. Yeah. I I think that when you're looking at it on paper, that comes across as a much bigger issue than it will on screen. Mm. Um, because you got to remember on screen, a, there's a sun and moon. In, you know, in the right. third age, there's right. like there's a whole different. bunch of other. It will look completely different. Um, the architecture is different. The costume is different. The it, you know the lighting is completely different. Um, this is actually a really good argument for the. I know that there was there was a, at some points in the season some discomfort with the kind of monotony of like Arwen in wandering around Lothlorien having conversation after com- having thoughtful conversation after thoughtful conversation. Shouldn't we jazz that up a little bit? And this that actually makes a really strong argument for not doing that. Right? It's actually good that we have a really stable setting. So whenever we see Malorn trees and sunshine, we know where we are. Yeah, yeah. Although there's plenty of sunshine outside the Malorn trees too, but you know. Right. Anyway, <laughs> right. um, yeah. No, but I think that uh, I I don't think that that's going to be as big of an issue when you're seeing it on screen. Right. Um, you know, we'll be seeing Galadriel and Celeborn, and they'll they'll at least look a little bit older than they did before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, but, like, I think enough time has passed to have Galadriel actually age. Yeah, at least a little bit. At least a little bit. Yeah, I I mean I I do object to I know that um there are people there are a couple of people who suggested casting Finway as a much much older man, which I no that's that would never work, but right. Um yeah. 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 No, it would be tricky. You can't really, he can't really, just like Kierden can't have his beard yet. I mean, it's just, it's too soon. It's too soon for that. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, it, I mean, the, the, there's no doubt that the frame was always going to be tricky this season. Um, what I think we could definitely do is, is pin it down to be a little bit more specific as to what's happening in every scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't think that we necessarily need to be concerned. I mean, we, I, I feel like there was no way we were, going, we were going to hold to the the frame, fully framed structure mm-hmm. of season one right, going right. into this. I think there, there were people who were bringing this up way back. Right, yeah, absolutely. Um, that this was going to be an issue. Yeah. Yeah, cool, okay. Um, well, so I, I just wanted to kind of talk about that broadly let's let's kind of go through some of the issues in the specific episodes and again i i, I don't have to go through them all in in enormous detail because uh, uh I, I you know i had fewer issues i really I, I really loved it um uh there are a lot of things that i really liked how you guys handled in episode nine so episode nine is the is about the making of the silmarils and um I love the way that you brought in the Palantir with Finway looking for Elway. Uh, that was a, that was that was that was. It's like it's exactly what would happen with the Palantir, right? Um, but the way that that brings it, there's so many things that are brought up in that scene. So we we it, we a introduce the making of the Palantir by Fanor, right? So we 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 know that he's doing this kind of thing. Um, we show the way in which the Noldor. You know, Finway as representative of the Noldor is looking backwards towards Middle Earth, right? And the idea that that Fanor, with almost the implication that Fanor devised this tool entirely so that he could look, oh, why, why, why would he need to look around remotely? Well, he wants to look at Middle Earth, right? So, you know, showing that kind of Middle Earth orientation of uh, Fanor's attention, or is always implying it. Like that, that that works really well, but of course the difference between the spirit in which Feanor is looking back towards Middle Earth and the spirit in which Finway is looking back, you know, Finway is looking back to try to find his lost friend, you know, whom he whom he uh, uh, never got a chance to see again, you know, after their last meeting. I thought that, that was really, uh, I, I thought that was really cool. Um, so yeah, that that scene was one of my was one of my favorites. Um, I thought the pairing between Melkor and Orome. So, you know, you had those two scenes, right, where Kelgorm is hunting with Orome and Huan, right, and they're talking about Middle-earth, and Orome loves Middle-earth, and he's, like, totally pro-Middle-earth, goes over to Middle-earth all the time. But, of course, he is the one who brought them over to Valinor, right? So he's not, like, encouraging them to go back. But that seems to kind of bring up this tension, Right between Orme being like, "Oh yeah, I love Middle Earth; it's great," but I brought you over here. Right? I mean, that really kind of spotlights the difficulty of the situation that's been created by the Valar, and then to follow that up with the scene of Melkor talking to the and making that tension explicit 
you know, and uh, Melkor talking about Middle Earth and how great Middle Earth is, and and uh, you know how the Noldor really should be over there and uh, and everything. So I I I just I thought the way that those two scenes worked together was was just was just genius. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Love the way that it spotlights the um, um, that tension without really making. Uh, not only without making the Valar look bad, but also making, showing how plausible Melkor's words are, right? As he's sowing the seeds of, of discontent among the Noldor. Anyway, huge fan of that. And I loved the, uh, the Rumil um, cameo there <laughs> as, in their, as they're having that conversation. I, I could tell you guys were putting forth a lot of effort trying to introduce as many minor characters as possible without making it confusing. Uh, you know, we get these occasional sprinklings of conversations between between folks, and sometimes it's not really sure that, um, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's not really obvious, um, like, who, the significance of a person, unless you know, right? Like, for instance, when later on you have uh, uh, Karanthir coming in, you know, the scene with Karanthir that you get. Um, for the people who know the Silmarillion well, Karanthir is perfect for that, you know, right? And the idea that that Karanthir is the one who is, like, going back and, like, saying bad things about people, bearing ill tidings, uh, is, uh, is, is perfect. But it doesn't matter if the viewers know his name or keep track of him. Right, it's not important, um, which is I think really important. We don't want our the viewers of the show to feel like they've got to memorize a, uh, a list, right, in order to keep track of who's who. So uh, yeah, I thought that was really cool. Um, that was my idea. Well, Karanthir was my idea. Well, there we go. See, that was that was that was brilliant. <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I guess this is one of the things that's so much fun about coming back to these outlines afterwards. I don't remember which parts I came up with and which parts other people came up with. And, of course, you guys will be just as amused by the fact that I often object to ideas that were originally my own the first time as well. So, see, I, I can I can, I can, can attain – my forgetfulness enables me to attain <laughs> objectivity <laughs> moving forward. Um Anyway, so that was really great. Uh, with the, um, um, oh, and I loved the Nerdanel Melkor arc, right? Um, tell me a little bit more about how you were thinking about uh, making that work and, and integrate. I know that was something that we talked about in the episode about how, you know, how I was suggesting we wanted to make Nerdanel sort of more pro Melkor so that there would be a little bit of tension there with her, with Fanor objecting to Melkor, but her not objecting to Melkor there. Um, you tell me a little bit about what, you know, sort of what you were thinking through as you guys were working on that. Well, I remember, I remember us having a discussion about having, um, having Nerdanel like actually making a, like a bust of Melkor. Now, of course she's made one of all, all of the Valar, you know, right. um, cause she's all pro Valar and everything like that. Um, we had to make sure to, make it not look like she was enshrining them. Right. In a way, you know, like th these aren't icons to be worshipped or anything like that. She's just honoring them by making these statue, statuette things right. of them. Right. Um, but I can imagine that would make Feanor particularly irritable. Right. Right. 
you know, we're trying to drive a wedge between these two people that we just showed have this fantastic chemistry. So, right, exactly, exactly. Um, but no, I thought that the, um, you know, the way that Milk, you have Melkor coming in and speaking with her at the beginning, right? Him just coming in yeah. and kind of smarming it up with all the Noldor and and, uh, you know, praising all of them and just being. All of the all of the Noldor except Feanor's favorite guy, right? Mm-hmm. But then the way you brought that back to the kind of the sharing of the glance between Melkor and Nerdanel at the end, right? As uh, as mm-hmm. Nerdanel is concerned about the Silmarils and Feanor's obsession about the Silmarils, and and uh, you know, and she and Melkor share that look at the end. I thought that was a really neat way of of. Uh, of kind of under because and it's really neat especially because it's it's really complex right um yeah you know it looks like they're on the same side but they're not really on the same side just as Feanor's character is really complex there right on the one hand he's yeah. one of the only one of the Noldor who's openly resistant to Melkor but he's openly resistant for the wrong reasons you know he he doesn't uh he doesn't actually oppose, not actually seeing through what Melkor is doing exactly. He feels like he is seeing through it, but he's not actually seeing through it. In fact, uh, you know, as as the Silmarillion narrator emphasizes, he he falls for it completely, right? I mean, he, right. he en- ends up, um, you know, the things that he says in his most impassioned speeches are just, in the end, you know, aping things that Melkor himself said um, and perpetuating Melkor's schemes and lies and yet, the whole time, you know, at no point is Feanor actually taken in by him. Anyway, I, 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 th- I thought that was really, I thought that was really yeah. cool. Um. <laughs> I wanted to ask about. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 no. It's okay. Separate. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Um, I was going to um, ask about the the whole Fingolf and sword thing. Um, there had been a question of as uh, of if Fingolf makes the first sword, is it Ringle? I don't prefer that I get that it, it it's it dramatically works um, if Melkor assists him in the making of the sword and then that's the sword that that's winds up sword. wounding him that's ends up wounding him yeah. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic it it just wouldn't work for me as far as um, because Ringle is built at like the height of you know Ringle is being used at the height of warfare between the the Noldor and the orcs at which point, like, there's no, there's no way that that would be, the, that a sword that he that he developed in a vacuum, would be as good, right? If right. that makes any sense, like, it yes. wouldn't it, physically, it would not be as advanced. Um, That's true. That's true. I mean, the other thing, here's, I'll, 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 I'll support you with a pro have him forge Ringil later argument. And that is, I kind of like the idea of his forging Ringil after the crossing of the Hell Caraxa. Um, I could see a forging of Ringil scene, um, you know, where, so Fingolfin is forging the sword with which he will combat the orcs and Melkor and wage his war against Morgoth in Middle-earth and end up, and with which he will end up wounding Morgoth. Um, that, you know, it, it is, you know, like the the all of the suffering that the Noldor have gone through, their long journey, um, their betrayal by the Feanorians, the crossing of the Hell Caraxa, um, 
that all of the all of the suffering that they have endured is sort of part of what is getting forged into the weapon that he is going to be using. Um, and so the connection between um, uh, between Ringil as like the ice sword and the Helcaraxa is really attractive, you know. So mm. I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's um, it could uh, it could work really well in that way to sort Wait. of show the like the new resolve and the new you know because when when remember like when Fingolfin and the the rest of the Noldor the rest of the non Feanorians show up, they're changed. I mean, they're really changed by their experience. Um, yeah. And I think that that might be one way to kind of try to capture that a little bit. Um, but at the same time, here's a counter-argument. The counter-argument to this is, how many times can we show Fingolfin? I mean, we're already asking our viewers to keep track of dozens of elf characters. Are we really going to ask them to keep track of, like, this is Fingolfin's sword number one, but his sword number two is an even better sword than his sword number one. <laughs> I have I have considered a, a possibility just now that that may work. When he wounds Melkor, is it when he's pinned down? Like, is it like the last time that Melkor? Well, he gives him seven wounds, and and and, and yeah, and, that's it, right. When they're fighting, and then he does stab his foot there. At the okay. Moment. What we could do is, um, if that was Ringle, mm-hmm. and it was like a like a short sword or something like that. He could have it on him. He's just not using it. Like he just keeps it for sentimental value because it's not super useful in actual battle. For for him, if he's if he's riding a horse, it's not something that he's going to use. Um, if he has it on him, and then he and then like Melkor stomps him, and he draws it out from his belt and stabs it, him with it, almost like a dagger. That. I see. Right, so that way we could still we you could kind of have it both ways. Yeah, right. of course. Then we lose the wonderful visual image of Ringil flashing like lightning beneath yeah. the cloud and everything, which is such a uh, such a wonderful image from that scene. Unless um, we just do that there. Yeah. Now Hakon points out he could reforge his sword into Ringil, That's and that true. of course introduces like yeah. the whole sword reforging thing, right? Yeah. What if the sword that he makes with Melkor in this scene actually breaks? At what point mm-hmm. would Fingolfin's sword break that he would need to reforge it after the crossing of the Helcaraxa? Because, of course, there's really the only first... one time that he uses the sword um, at the uh, bef- prior to the crossing of the Helcaraxa, and that's at the Kinslaying. Could his sword, his Melkor sword, break at the Kinslaying? Yeah, and I, that I would like be that. That, that. That could be a really powerful symbol. Right of like because Fingolfin, there is there there is the sense in which like obviously the Feanorians in the Kinslaying like that was really bad. I'm not saying that they're less culpable, but there's something even more tragic about the followers of Fingolfin pitching in at the Kinslaying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's, it's, no, not more culpable, but more tragic. Um, <clears throat> so. If we can sort of show, I think the breaking of Fingolfin's sword could be something yeah. that. Um, uh, ooh, hey, I, 
I just had a random idea, which I think is really cool. Uh-huh. And I, get, I have to stop myself soon because we're, I'm like launching into full like let's plan season three mode. But um, uh-huh. what if Fingolfin's sword breaks in the combat? Right. So we see Fingolfin's sword breaking after the mm-hmm. battle, um, and when at the scene when Finarfin and uh, and Fingolfin part. Right. When Finarfin turns back to go to to to, to return to Tyrion, Fingol- uh, Finarfin should have a sword too. And he breaks it on purpose. So we have the parallel breaking of the swords of Fingolfin and Finarfin, but Finarfin, he breaks his sword himself and casts it aside, swearing never to take up arms again. Um, Anyway, sorry. There's there's something else about that, that, by the way. There's something else about that, by the way. Yeah. So that means that Fingolfin is wandering around carrying a a broken sword. Yes. Who's our, our main frame character again for season three? Aragorn. Mm-hmm. What is he carrying at the beginning uh-huh. of Lord of the Rings? Uh-huh, yeah. We get the broken sword. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I like it. Um, so we should at least see a shot of, of the shards of Narsil mm-hmm. at some point during mm-hmm. that same episode. Uh-huh. Yep. I love it. I love it. Um, but yeah, so so that that works. And then the idea of Finarf, or, or Fingolfin carrying the broken sword in this like sort of penitential mood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because he feels really bad about the kinslaying. And so, you know, he's got his broken sword. You know, he doesn't hang it around his neck like the albatross uh, for the ancient mariner. But anyway, and then so then his reforging of the sword um, in the new context, um, in his enmity to Melkor and his determination to, like, fight and defend his people and everything. And then Ringil is reforged. Um, so it is still the same sword, but it's not the same sword. Okay, cool. I think we solved the sword it problem. Name, I think just like Narsil becomes Anduril. Yeah. Um, right, exactly. Now, of course, Marie uh, reminds us, as, as as she's always so good about doing, that, of course, Aragorn won't be carrying the Shards of Narsil around yet. I'm aware. he's not given them yep. until Season 5. But they're there. They, they're still there in Rivendell, right? So, yeah. All he has to do is pick it, is pick it up and handle it for, for a moment. That's it. That's, That's right. all we need. That's right, yeah. Just just the, the, the image of the broken sword. Absolutely. Um, cool. Love it. All right. But anyway, <clears throat> that's... Uh, Neither here nor there. <laughs> but, but, but okay, so, so this came up 10? because of the episode 10. Yeah, no, wait, hang on a second. I think I had something else about episode 9. Um, okay. Cool. Uh, oh, yeah. My, so two things. One, the, the, the hallowing. Tell me more about the hallowing of the I was glad you guys included the hallowing of the Silmarils. Uh-huh. But we got to think about the hallowing of the Silmarils. Like, how does that work? Does she hallow them while they're on his head? Like, is Fanor wearing them when she hallows them? And what does she no, do? No, he's got to be holding them in his hand. He's got to be holding like, because uh, otherwise it's just going to look like she's doing a benediction on Feanor himself, right? Right. right. Um, which I, I think is kind of mixed messagey, um, and which he yeah. wouldn't be cool with. Which leads me to the question: Is he cool with it? Like, does he object? Um, I'm sort of imagining him showing the Silmarils to Varda and Varda hallowing them and then him looking at them. Remember the scene when, uh, you know, after Frodo gets the ring back from Tom Bombadil, you know, when he's like looking at it like somebody who has lent a a trinket to a juggler, right? Do we get the same thing with the Silmarils with Feanor after he's like, what the heck did you do? You know, did you, I, I, I don't know. Well, or, or he could feel like she's showing them appropriate honor. Right. You know, like, that's right, that's right, that's definitely exactly how people should be treating the things I make. Right, right. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, and Maria is, is right to point out as well that he's still relatively early in the possessiveness thing. Though I will say that the way that you guys have set up the forging of the Silmarils, like Nerdinel's mm. concern that he's already over the deep end, you know, in his mm. making of the uh, of the or at least putting himself in danger and going off track. Um, suggests that already in, you know, day one of Silmaril possession, he's already, you know, mm. you know, th- th- things are not really positive still. Um, but, uh, but yeah, see, Marie, I agree. If we have a scene of him handing the Silmarils to the Valar, that is a big deal. And it does set up the scene, yeah. the episode 13 moment when he's being asked to hand them to the Valar permanently. Um, so my thought, Marie, is that there should be some reservation. He should do it, you know, with a relatively good grace. But I think there should be a discernible pause and discomfort yeah. by him. Um, and uh, maybe, Nick, as you were suggesting, he is pleased by the hallowing of them, right? By Varda's blessing of them um, and sort of taking it as a sign. Maybe he can even say something which indicates that, you know, his sort of affirmation or the the fact that he is taking her action as an affirmation that, you know, his great work is the greatest thing ever, you know, right? You know, it's like, obviously you appreciate that what I've done is just the most awesome thing uh, in the world. Um, Stars. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Your stars were pretty nice, right? But this is obviously an upgrade. The stars Um, were cute, but, you know, you can hold these in your hand. Exactly. You can wear them at parties. Come on, man. This is, yeah, clearly. Um, so never mind the fact that Varda's face is, for all intents and purposes, a star. But, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, so no, I, clearly that 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 moment of the of the hallowing and the handing over has to be has to be a kind of a big deal. Um, and then, oh, the other thing I was missing from episode nine. I feel like there needs to be more. We have to make sure that we establish Melkor's lust for the Silmarils. Um, mm. Any ideas about how we can? Because we need to, we need to make that. That was one thing that I that that I was kind of missing a little bit from the whole arc of the of the last portion of the season. Um, the idea that Melkor is really just going to sell out on this, you know, that 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 he becomes obsessed with possessing the Silmarils, um, and I I, I, I want to make sure that we uh, that we get that really clearly. Um, I, I would like to be kind of careful with that and not mm-hmm. hit it too hard mm-hmm. um, because otherwise in right. episode 13 when he like it's going to be obvious that he's got the Simmerals when Feanor is deciding whether or not to give up the Simmerals. Um so yeah right well but hmm yeah well that's an episode 13 question we'll come back to that um okay yeah. Oh, and by the way, yes, as a couple of you have pointed out, um, uh, my website people have already fixed it. Uh, the website is the website is back, so you can get to the forums and see the outlines if you haven't gotten to yet. Also, there is the link to the Hobbit Immersion Camp page, where you, if you click on the Join This Event button, it will uh, it will download for you the flyer that you can distribute at your local library, um, or homeschool co-op, or whatever. Okay. Sorry, just wanted to point out the website's back. Um, yeah, so I, I agree we don't want to hit it too hard. And as Marie was just saying, remember, you know, we're still in good guy Melkor mode and we don't want to give his obsession away. 
Yeah, no, that, that's right. I'm not saying that we need to show it as like a sinister and burning lust, but I, I think something more to indicate his. We want just we want to make sure readers know he's his the level of his interest in the Silmarils. Um, yeah. So well, if he's there when they're being when they're being hollow. We can show him kind of like looking at them kind of longingly. Yes. And stuff. Yes. Um. Maybe, maybe, maybe he should get a, a speech of effusive praise. Um, mm. Maybe he could be involved in the hallowing scene. Obviously, he doesn't do the hallowing, obviously. But, um, uh, yeah, Marie says it would tie into his Varda obsession. See, Marie, I was thinking of that, too, because we do have the Varda thing, right? We still have the kind of tension between Melkor and Varda from season one. So if, if the hallowing of the Silmarils is essentially a three-way scene, like if the three primary actors in that are Fanor and Melkor and Varda, that could be really interesting. Um, if he's involved in the handing over, um, maybe Fanor, maybe he asks to see them right away. Maybe it is to Melkor that Fanor first, hands them when he hands them over and then Varda takes them and hallows them after Melkor has touched them um, as if she sees through him right um, and because uh, it could look almost as if it wouldn't be a definitive thing but certainly in retrospect it would appear that she did that in response <laughs> to Melkor getting them I just saw some terrible the only, the, the only thing that we got to be a little careful with is that um, so all right. You remember the original Star Trek episode, Trouble with Tribbles, and they yeah. find the Klingon spy because the Tribbles hate Klingons? That's right. Um, yeah. They could totally do that, and <laughs> Varda could, like, hold up the Simerals after she's hollowed them, hold them up to Belcar. You want to hold them? And he's like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'll be right over here, not holding the Simerals. <laughs> not holding the Simerals. Um <laughs> Yeah. Well, no, because I mean, she she wouldn't give him back. She would give him back to Feanor, and that would be the thing. Right. Like, he would never touch them again. So he, he would he would have held them in his hand, and we can show like that image of the of the Silmarils in his hand would be really cool, right? We so we show the the three glowing Silmarils benignly in his hand, and then later on, in episode thirteen, when we show his, it's the same hand that's burned, right, by the same three. And in fact, like the burn can be in exactly the same pattern that the three Silmarils were sitting in his hand the first yeah. time, right? Um, yeah. Now, Maria is concerned that it would imply, it might imply that Melkor tainted them. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't think so. I mean, I could because I think that Varda would be taking a definite action. It's not just like. Feanor hands them to Melkor, Melkor hands them to Varda, Varda hands them back to Feanor, and then, like, somewhere along the way they become changed. Like, I would think the hallowing would be a thing. Like, it would be an actual ritualistic yeah. thing that she... It, it would be clear to all of them that she's done something to the, to the Silmarils. Um, and both Melkor and Feanor would, would understand what, what she did. Um, but I don't think... I don't think we have to worry about the tribal factor because Feanor's not going to hand them back to Melkor. Right? Yeah, um, so nobody, least of all Melkor will really know or understand fully what kind of effect the Silmarils would have on him. Mm. Um, we should, at some point during that ceremony, have them brighten um, for a moment so that we know, so that it's not weird when they do that for, when one of them does that for Arendelle full-time. You know, like the light fills the room. Right. 
like they go super bright, like star bright, like brightest star in the sky bright. When when Varda's hallowing them. Yeah, yes. that would be a good time for that to happen. Yes, yes, um, yeah. Okay, so Maria's strongly objecting to the idea of Melkor holding the Silmarils. Um, I understand. Maria's paralleling it to like Boromir holding the ring on Carathras in the films. Um, yes. Yes. I hear you, Marie. I hear you. Um, I she guess we... Problem with that I guess we don't have to have him... Uh, we don't have to have him touching them. Um, he could just be they, looking on. He could just be standing box. there as... as. I mean, I kind of like the idea of showing the Silmarils in his hand and then showing the contrast later with the burning. Mm-hmm. But... But I wouldn't insist on it. I mean, he could just, as long as he's right there, as long as he's involved, as long as it's, I mean, I really like the idea of having it be the three of them. Um, yeah. And then we the get MC. that kind of overlay of his desire, you know, so we get like the, the, the overlay of the like romantic sexual desire for Varda, right? And his the sort of the possessiveness towards her and her light that we saw in season one and the parallel between that and the Silmarils, that, that I think provides a really kind of interesting historical cue. Um, Mariel wants him to reach for them but Feanor snatched them back um, that that also seems possible um, I don't know if I would want to go that strong there but um, I could see something like Varda ha- hallows them they flash and she hands them back to Feanor Melkor is staring at them. Feanor looks at him, sees him staring at them, and closes his hand around the Silmarils or something, you know, so that we can show Feanor. So at this point, distrust. the Silmarils are not in whatever diadem Feanor wears them on his forehead, then I take it. Right. Um, I. See, I'm thinking. Feanor would clearly make a, a diadem from which the Silmarils could be detached. I can't imagine him... I, I mean, obviously he, he wants to be able to wear them on his forehead, but I can't imagine him being like, they're only going to be set in this diadem. He's going to want to be able to hold them in his hand. He's going to want to be... You know, he, he is not going to want to make the Silmarils monopurpose, right? Um... Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Murray says he just he he just he just made them. Um, so yeah. So yeah. No, I think I think that that would work. I think that would work. Okay, I said more about episode nine than I was uh, planning originally to say, but uh, th- that was that was that was a, bu- a bunch of really good stuff. Episode ten. So episode ten is the um, the Kinstrife scene or episode, rather, um, where we're getting the, the stuff between Fingolfin and Feanor. I really liked that. and the, I mean, of course, the biggest risk, it seems to me, of this episode is the uh, all the minor characters and the role that all the minor characters play. Um, uh, that it could be confusing. But again, like, we can't live in fear of that when it comes to the Silmarillion film projects, right? People are going to have to keep track of a fairly long list of characters and we're just going to have to, like, move forward and, you know, thinking about that, but move forward in faith that that's going to be possible. Um, uh, 
I like the 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 gr- the manifestation of s- sort of snobbishness or standoffishness among the different elf houses. That that more division is happening between the Noldor and the Vanyar and the Teleri as a kind of parallel to or sort of illustration of the kind of turning inward and and uh, and, and sort of more pride focused and. Um, that's exactly the kind of thing that I would expect to happen. So we can see the Noldor are becoming different from the others, but that tendency to be to to have, to adopt an us versus them mentality is, of course, also what leads to the strife between the people of Fanor and the people of Fingolfin. So, um, so I really, I really, I really like that. And and the point, of course, because it works really beautifully. Um, the point about Fanor supporters questioning the devotion of Fingolfin to the Noldor with all of the, you know. Your mom's a Vanyar, you know. Your kid, your son just married, you know, a Vanya woman. This is, uh, you know, your your brother Finarfin is married to one of the Teleri. Like, come on, like the followers of Fanor are clearly the Noldor's Noldor, right? I mean, this is. Uh, um, so yeah, I, I I really I really like that. Um, I, I I thought I thought that that whole dynamic came out really well um, the introduction of the uh, second children works perfectly then in that context right where we get that same us versus them tendency having shown the us versus them tendency growing not only between you know uh, between the different uh, groups of the elves but among the uh, the different families within the Noldor as well then to sort of throw on top of that this uh, larger issue of like oh and by the way mortal men are coming and uh, they're going to take over Middle Earth which obviously the Valar must have left to them on purpose so that they could inherit it and keep you over here um, that's like the perfect time for Melkor to, 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 to throw that in so I thought that was I, I thought that was really neat yeah, um, it was getting increasingly difficult not to get topical with any of this <laughs> as time went on. As as we approached the finale, it was becoming more and more difficult not to not to let modern politics slide yeah. into uh, yeah. the situation. Yeah, no, uh, just think of how uh, challenging that's going to be when we get to the hiding of Valinor. Uh, but anyway. Um... <laughs> Right, I mean, it's just, but it's okay. Um, so yeah, yeah, but uh, but no, that's. Uh, I think you guys did fine. I didn't. I didn't detect any topicality when reading through, so that was good. Um, I was able to carry on not thinking about modern po- politics, which is how I try to uh, arrange my days. So um, that was good. Um, bit my biggest question about uh, episode ten: um, Melkor's flight. Why the his flight seemed kind of sudden. The rationale for like why he is suspected, um, who suspects him of what, why it is he. So, so I mean, the 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 fact that the drawing of the sword on Fingolfin by Fanor is a big deal. That's obviously a big deal, and the way that it builds up as like the culmination, you know, the clear indication something is very wrong here. Um, you know, the 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 final bubbling to the surface of the. Uh, you know the really unpleasant divisions and and attitudes that have been apparent all the way through the episode, increasingly apparent and becoming increasingly ugly and anti, um, you know, Valar. Um, so I think that works beautifully. But I want to make sure the reader, the readers, the viewers are not puzzled um, by 
the flight of Melkor? Why should he flee? Um, well, we could give a... We could actually... I don't want this, this scene to take up a lot of time. It's already a pretty busy episode. Um, but we could have, like, him leaving and Nerdanel, like, hey, where, where are you going? We need, you know, there's all kinds of crazy things happening. We need right. you. And he could say something to the effect of, you know, that that there's too much... Um, he could probably try to blame it on everybody's antagonism of the Valar and feel like it, it, it's not good for him to be in the city. You know, yeah. like, he could... Ex- he could express that his presence there is is going to cause further harm. Yeah, yeah. And make it seem like make it seem like he's being benevolent in leaving, mm-hmm. even though he's just trying to save his own skin because the Valar are about to find out what's what he's been doing this whole time. Yeah, yeah. That would be tricky. It would be tricky to have um, he, Melkor trying to defend his departure. I mean, it could certainly be done. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, uh, just as a refresher, as Hakan was just saying, of course, in the book, the Valar discover that, you know, the, the drawing of the sword is the thing that yeah. really finally clues everybody in. Something is clearly amiss here. This is not just a, a small thing. This is a big deal. And they soon discover that Melkor's, uh, um, you know, Melkor's work, Melkor's lies are behind it. Um, Right. In the Book of Lost Tales. But we Tales, weren't going to show that. Right, exactly. In the Book of Lost Tales, there's an actual trial. It was like a hearing, basically. It's in the uh, Timberillion, too. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, it's, we get dialogue and stuff from Manway and, and uh, misinterpretations and stuff. Um, it, it's, it's, there's the, there's a great deal more. It's a much bigger scene in the Book of Lost Tales uh, on, on this okay. than there is in the published Timberillion. But yeah, exactly. We weren't going to want to do that. Um, I wonder, though, if we could get some glimmer of the Valar perspective. Because I do think we need to establish he's leaving town because the Valar are onto him. He knows the Valar are onto him, and the gig is up, right? So he, 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 he's out of town. Um, we need to communicate that somehow. Um, Ayanwe could ask where he is. Yes, that's what I was thinking. What arrived. if we got Ayanwe coming in? And what if he acts in such a like his because his actions could easily be misinterpreted, right? So basically, he what he's doing is kind of getting to the bottom of what happened. But everybody, um, Finway, Fingolfin, could feel like he's being really high-handed. Um, in fact, we could get a scene. Um, the other thing that I was kind of missing, this kind of segues into into episode eleven as well. Um, the uh, the moment when Finway says, "I'm out of here," right? Um, the outlines, if I'm correct, the outlines kind of do that in flashback, right? Um, we the, yes. the like I hold myself unkinged scene with Finway kind of happens off stage, doesn't it? Well, yeah, because we're. I mean, the the when that actually happens is at the hearing. Where it, you know before the Valar, where the Valar explain exactly where where they're coming from, and Oldor kind of ex- misunderstand what they're saying, and they right. it, they say where they're ca- coming from. Um, Fingolfin has this moment where it almost seems like he's rebelling against the Valar by for- forgiving his brother. Yes, yes. Um, at least that's how I, I've I've read it. Um, 
So, like, you have this scene where all of these, all of these points of view come out. Uh, but we decided not to do that, so we had to find a way yeah. to yeah. make that happen in a way that's not awkward. Because if you lengthen the scene at the end, where Feanor is being banished, where the banishment is being delivered, mm-hmm. like it's okay for for Aonway to deliver the banishment order and then ask, "Oh, by the way, where's Melkor?" Um, it's more difficult for him to go through an entire investigative process at that point. Yes, no, I agree. We don't want an investigative process. Um, and we could probably suggest it by something as simple as Marie was suggesting about, uh, you know, it, he sees the Anway coming uh, and just leaves. I mean, even that, even even showing the viewers Melkor deliberately sneaking out of the room when he sees the coming in is enough to sort of provide us context for his departure. Right. You know, he's clearly, uh, you know, we need to, to, to show Melkor is on the lamb and he's on the lamb because he thinks the Valar are going to be onto him. Right. You know, he, he okay. th- that it's going to get exposed. Um, so at this point, we're willing to, to pull, to pull the, the mask off and say, no, hey, the mask, Melkor knows that he's... the mask wouldn't necessarily be off. Melkor leaves. Right. Um, right. So we don't see him. Again, we don't see it, but but really, at this point, the number of times Melkor is is on camera again. I mean, really, after his departure, we're only going to get his conversation with Feanor, and that's the moment at the end of that conversation is really when the mask is going to come off. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. We, we don't want we don't want to have the the fullness of his. Um, you know, negative impact on the Noldor to be revealed, right? Um, but we do want to show that he's running away from the Valar so that people can kind of make sense of what's going on there. Um, because, of course, that could be consistent. Remember, we've been, we've been bad-mouthing the Valar, right? So his departure when the Valar come could still be consistent with him being, you know, a misunderstood uh, by the mean old Valar point of view, right? Um he could be fleeing oppression just as much as he could be a fl- as, as, as he's fleeing justice. Um, well, that's going to be tough to do unless you have some dialogue where somebody's where he's saying that. Um, he that could come up in the conversation with Fanor. Fanor could ask him why he left, and he could he could say, you know, okay. be, because like I I was you know. I, I was speaking the truth, and they they were uncomfortable with that, and I could tell they were gonna, you know, they were gonna they were gonna start persecuting me again. Um, as you know, they've persecuted you, yeah. exactly. As they've persecuted you, exactly. Um, so I think that that could come up uh, pretty pretty well there. Yeah. So exactly, Marie. No dialogue when he leaves. We can we can save that because uh, it's it's just the next episode, right? It's in episode eleven. That yeah, it's the very it's the very next episode. episode. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Le- leaving. Leaving a little bit of um, confusion as to why he's cutting a chogi, right? Right. Other right. archaic parlance. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I agree, Marie. The, the the ambiguity of it. So he wouldn't be showing his pursuit by the Valar or them, you know, or or anything, or their condemnation of him, or the Valar's condemnation of Melkor, or anything like that. We. I just want to make sure that we don't just have people be like. 
where's Melkor? Why did he leave? What what the heck is going on? Right? I mean, if th- there needs to we because his departure from Valinor is a big deal, so we need to have some kind of clear cue. It has to play a role in the story, and even if it's just him slipping out the back door when Aonwe shows up, um, that that I think establishes the thing and enables us to follow that up in the in the following episode. Um, uh, okay, there was another thing. Oh yeah, no, Finway's unkinging. So. I agree the official thing happens off stage because we're not going to show the hearing. But I think that we can have... Um, I think that we can have a... a foretelling... Not a foretelling. A foreshadowing of it. Not even a foreshadowing. Um, a preliminary business. Um, when Aonwe shows up, there can be uh-huh. an exchange between Aonwe and Finway and Fingolfin. Uh, uh, well, no, Fingolfin's gone. He's walked out. So it's Fanor and right. Finway who are there. Right. Um, the um, the two things which are not so 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 they're they're basically two major things that need to happen, right? The banishment of Fanor and Finway giving his unkinged speech and banishing himself, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Both of those things don't officially happen until um, the hearing, but they can be presaged. It's like it's like the difference between being sentenced and being arrested. You know, like I, I, I want the arrest to happen. We don't have to get the trial. We don't have to get the sentencing. Right? That can we can hear about that later on. But I want, but I want an arrest. Again, to, to show the dynamic that's happening. And Finway's reaction to that, right? Finway can object. And um, I think I felt like the unkinging thing at the beginning of episode 11 kind of came from out of the blue a little bit. Um, well, how much more from out of the blue would it appear if they're suddenly in a new location and we haven't said that Feanor is being banished? Because the, the impression that I got from the original discussion is that you guys wanted to have the delivering of the banishment take place here in episode 10. So when we get to episode 11, we're in Formanos and, and then we have, in which case the unkinging can happen too. I mean, if we're having, if, if, if Iyanwe is going to show up and say you're banished, then we have, have Finway throw his crown down, have, have, have him make his, why not? Why does the unkinging then have to happen Mm. off stage? Um, Okay. Well, I mean, the 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 only thing is that it, when when he says that line, there like he wouldn't say that in a vacuum. There has to be a conversation that takes place around it. Right. Um, and we don't have time. What we, you could we, do, we don't want to take away right. from the banishment climax. Right. right. So what we could do is instead of actually having this dialogue, we could actually have the have this like focus on one of the characters. Right. Have the sound go out, but you, but like you see almost like um, I, I, I'm trying to think of some place where this is happening, but you see like kind of almost out of focus people yelling. You could actually see Finway throwing his crown down, so that when you get into episode eleven, it makes a lot more sense. Exactly. Yeah, that would be that would be plenty. That would be plenty. Again, just like I, all I need is to show Melkor leaving the room and doing it when the Valar are approaching to make it clear he's running away from them. Um, we don't need to explain it yet. We, I, I just, we just need a clear cue so that we have a context for people to understand what's happening. 
I would be totally fine with the same thing with Finway. So Fanor gets banished. We can show Fin. We can Finway can be outraged. Uh, we can show mm-hmm. his outrage, his solidarity with Finway. Like he sticks with Fanor and leaves uh, and, and leaves the room with Fanor. Right? We can have him throwing his crown down. He doesn't have to give a speech. He doesn't have to explain things. And in when when they do talk about it at the beginning of episode eleven, in the conversation, we can then make it clear that he went to Manway and 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 you know, or, or like there can have been more process when he like yeah. made an official declaration that he held himself unkinged. Um, but we established the uh, uh, we established the whole the whole details of it later on. But as, as, as long as we establish the, the main concept so that when Finway is sitting there in Formidos, uh talking about being unkinged, nobody's confused. And, and that, that dramatic yeah. moment, especially with the role that you guys are giving to the crowns at the end of episode 13, him chucking his crown down seems to be an important moment there. Yeah. Since, yeah. since that crown and it, that becomes the moment, one of the moments really when the crown, becomes a really important symbol. I mean, of course, it would be earlier on as well with uh, the whole foretelling the destiny of Fingolfin kind of thing. But, um, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Let's see. What time is it? Getting late. Um, That's fine. Um, Episode 11 is... Good. I wanted a little bit more with, but I think we've actually already kind of gone there. I, I I wanted a little bit more with the conversation with Melkor. Um, mm-hmm. I like the all the the you guys did really well with the stuff that I think was would be really hard. And I know you said at the beginning, you know, and as Karita said in the comments, these outlines aren't as easy as you were making them look. Um, uh, but um, I. I, I, I thought you guys did a great job with what I certainly would have found the most difficult stuff to do, and that is like the developing of all the interpersonal tensions, showing the distrust among the Noldor and all the factionalization that happens. The way you guys handled that in episode 10 I thought worked really well. The way that you guys are dealing with the family tensions in episode 11 with like Indus's visit and uh, and Fanor being increasingly rude to her and the the, the clear sense, like Nerdanel's position, right? How she is not seeing eye to eye with Finway and yet both of them know that there's a problem here and um, you know, all, all the kind of different poles of this conflict here, right? You know, Fanor, Finway, Indus, Nerdanel works, I thought, you know, the, the kids, right? The, the, the seven sons. I thought that stuff all worked really well and was, 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 was really interesting and well done. So um, that was sort of the, the main thing I thought was, was, was really cool, that you guys did that stuff really well. Um, really cool choice of, uh, of Ilmare to show up and deliver the uh, invitation, the, the, the message. I thought that was really cool. Well, we knew it couldn't be Aonway because we it had to be someone that Fainer could kind of push around in a way. Right. And there's no way that that would be believable if it was Aonway. There's no way that right. Right. Fainor shuts the door in Aonway's face and that's the end of that conversation. <laughs> right, exactly. Right, that, that scene is followed immediately by the scene of the fragments of the door showering in across Fainor. No, exactly, exactly. Um, nobody pushes Aon. After... Aonway's tragic death in season one. Nobody pushes Aonway around anymore. 
I, I do like that how we've kind of developed Amway to being a little bit of a hothead sometimes. I don't yes. know how that happened, yeah. but. Well, it makes sense, right? Given like what he went through, right? That he's not going right. to be like, let's wait and see and see how things work out. No, yeah, like no, he's he's not putting up with crap anymore. You know, that's that right. makes all kinds of sense. Um, yeah. And Hakan, I agree. The handmaiden of Varda does seem very unthreatening, right? Um, and uh, uh, and and but yet significant, right? I mean, this is Varda's. This is Varda's handmaiden, yeah. and Varda's a big yeah. deal, and and so yeah, yeah, yeah I think it's uh, very cool. I, I I really like that a lot. Um, uh, okay, so let's focus on the conversation then with Melkor. So we we talked about one thing we wanted to add to the 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 climax, you know that 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 conversation. Um, let's just talk a little bit more about that. So. Melkor talks about what's Melkor's approach here. He's trying to convince Fanor what to leave with him. Um, he's trying to convince Fanor that they're on the same team, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the the gist of it, basically, is that they're on the same team. They should be working together. The Valar are clearly off the rails. Right. You know, if they work together, they could they could. You know, right. uh, they could raise the other, the rest of the of the elves up, and essentially overthrow the Valar and allow the the elves to live their lives. And there could be, you know, there should be here some kind of, not exactly summary, but allusions back to the the rumors that he's been spreading all the way through, right? Because essentially, this, this, the first half of this conversation, or the first three quarters of this conversation, this is the culmination of the whole good Melkor thing, right? Right. Where he goes through and basically says, see, look, I am, I have your best interests at heart, and the Valar are doing you guys wrong. This story that he's been trying to convince them of, this story that we have been working to make sure is at least plausible that case should be presented in its fullest plausibility by Melkor here, yeah. right? This is like his the closing argument of Melkor's whole thing. And it should look really plausible, right? Especially with the banishment and everything. There's a lot that he can do to play on that and show um, that, see, clearly, you and I, Feanor, have both been right about the Valar all the way through, because he knows that Feanor has been bad-mouthing the Valar as well, right? Right. Um, and, uh, and he, um, but then we have him touching on the Silmarils, and that works so well. Just, just like in the book, it works so well, right? Um, right. Him pushing it one step further uh, into into implying that they are trying to get the Silmarils from him, and that that's what gives him away. Um, and that's the moment. Yeah, all he had to do was keep his mouth shut there. Yep. Which anybody in, anybody who's ever worked in sales knows that that's the point where you shut up and let the person think themselves exactly. into right. buying what you're saying. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Y- y- you can't you can't overtalk uh, in that point. And, and exactly, he he overtalks by one step. Absolutely. Um, and so he delivers his jail crow of Mandos line um, and slams the gate, right? Because this is the gate, this is the outer gate of yes. Formanos, right? That he's slamming in his yes. face. Um, yes. This is the same 
the same door that he shut in the face of uh, of Ilmare. Of Ilmare, yes, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, Only now he goes and shuts every single door in Formanos on his way back to the vault. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and I love that idea of like the slamming of door after door until he is alone in his inner sanctum. That 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 really could work beautifully if we set that up right visually. Uh, that could that could be just mm-hmm. a gorgeous visual symbol of like Fanor's progress, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Tony says, "I love the line in the book about how he, he he shut the door in the face of the greatest of all the dwe- the dwellers in Ea." I agree, Tony. It's an awesome line, and that's a thing that we need to really sort of convey. And I think the parallel yeah. with Ilmar with uh, uh, Ilmari could be really effective there. Um, on the one hand, Fanor's action is the same in both cases. But to sort of show how much bigger of a deal it is the second time, um, right. uh, yeah, I think. Well, there's a, there's, a, I mean, obviously, music will play a big part in that, but you can show it also in reactions. Like, you can show Ilmari standing outside the gate by herself, looking baffled, baffled um, and sad. Right. I mean, I, right. I think she should be Versus, saddened by this. Right. Yeah. Versus when we see Milkor outside the gate, he is barely holding in elemental fury. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, because the time isn't right yet. Yes, I, 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 I would even go for not quite holding it in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and even as we were talking about in the in our session on this before, an actual vi- you know visual change coming over yes. Milkor, I, I would be really yes. Uh, well, I, I was thinking it would be really interesting for like his skin to crack and for like you to see like fire. Yes. Inside, almost. Yes, exactly. Yeah, for the for the uh, uh, for the the grass under his feet to smoke. Yes, exactly. I mean, that really. Yes, yes. Um, very barely holding it in, um, and uh, like and, he's actually visually, he's actually imagining just burning the whole place to the ground right then and there. Yeah, yeah, and yes, I, I agree, and I think we said this in the session, I, I think that this is the point at which he becomes, visually, what we see him as later on. I mean, you know, this is the tyrant of Otumno. Um, he look, he, he, in his anger, you know, his form, his face changes, and he becomes the tyrant of Otumno, and, you know, his, he, his, his appearance doesn't significantly change, um, as we move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Marie says the mask slips and his entire body is the mask. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be really, that could be a really awesome scene. Okay. So episode 12, we're moving along. We're doing great here. Um, so, I need to. Um, yeah, I know you need to. I know, to go I, I know I've contributed so much to this episode, <laughs> but I have to go because I have a meeting. But I, I figured this is a good time to say goodbye to everybody. So I'll see okay. you guys in two weeks. I think in two weeks we're doing casting, right? That's we're right. Casting? casting episode in two weeks. Yep. That's right. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. Okay. Don't uh, don't do anything I wouldn't do while I'm gone. Okay. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Episode twelve. Uh, tell me about. So let's rewrite the entire series now. The trip. Yeah, exactly. All right, everybody, it's carte blanche now. Um, let, let's uh, bring in the scene where we uh, execute Bobway. No, just kidding. But um, Kelbrimbor, tell me about the Kelbrimbor uh-huh. scene. I was really interested in that. That was the that was the scene that really kind of jumped out at me most, uh, as sort of most unexpected 
in uh, mm. in your outline of episode twelve. So t- so the, so the scene just to to, to summarize for folks, um, it's the opening of um, or near the opening anyway of the episode. Uh, so Celebrimbor, we've we've already seen young Celebrimbor in the workshop with Grandpa. Right, uh, so that we see right. the two of them working together, which we—it's just something we had wanted to to to, to accomplish. Here we have young Celebrimbor um, sneaking into the central vault, right? The the story and you know where the Silmarils are, and him looking at and studying the Silmarils. And Fanor comes in and 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 just goes ape, right? I mean, he's absolutely furious at Celebrimbor and like grabbing him by the throat. And Finway's upset, and everyone is shocked, and. Um, Tell me more about this scene. Okay, so I'll tell you where this came from. As I was thinking about this episode, I realized that Finway needed to assert Finway needed to assert strength, not only emotionally but also physically, because uh-huh. we're about to 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 set him up in a situation where he's face to face with Melkor yes. in a combat situation. So we needed to show that it was. Not completely like we we need to show that Finway wasn't incapable, right? Right. Physically, um, um, so that at least we would we we could we could kind of convince ourselves. Well, maybe he can survive this, right? Um, right. Spoiler alert: he won't. But <laughs> right. Um, that that's where that initially started. Um, and then what, so then the scene kind of developed into something that would have several things take place. We would see just how far Feanor was willing to go in, in the context of the Cimarils. Yeah. Uh, we get a nice little bit where we show that Celebrimbor is clever enough to get through, uh, Feanor's super duper lock right that we that we saw him making uh in the last episode right right um and also we get to see a scene with finway a standing up to his son for the first time and last time um and b doing something physically yeah. to, to illustrate that he's not helpless right Okay, yeah, I like that. So here's a, here's a Carita's summary. The possessiveness of Feanor, the curiosity and innate attraction to craftsmanship of Celebrimbor, the spark of Moxie left in Finway. Yeah, okay, right? Yeah. I, I see that. I see that. Um, I think it's interesting as well um, in the bigger picture, because, of course, this is the Feast of Reconciliation, right? This is everybody's right. coming together. This is, this is we're all friends now, right? And to start the mm-hmm. we're all friends now episode with showing that things are kind of like, <laughs> over in Formanos, things are not all together, <laughs> right? Right. This is, right. Uh, uh, it's certainly, um, it certainly uh, does not augur well for the uh, success of the Feast of Reconciliation later in the episode. No, it does. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I like that. I like that. Um, uh, okay. Um, I don't want to get too bogged down because I want to make sure I leave time to talk about episode 13. Um, mm. I was interested in the fact that everybody assumed that um, 
Feanor was gonna disobey the Valar. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting, and I, I just want to make sure that we're kind of making because he's commanded to come. Um, everyone's right. invited, but he is commanded to come. So if if they're all saying, "Well, obviously, Dad's," we we all know Dad's not gonna go. We have to make sure it's perfectly clear that when they all say that, they're all like, so I guess Dad is declaring war on the Valar officially as of today. Right. What do we do now? I mean, it needs to be not just like, it's a given Dad's going to be stubborn about this, but bunker mentality. Like, okay, you know, um, get in your foxholes, everybody, because Dad has declared war on the powers of Earth. Like, it's a huge deal. Like, if he's going to, if he's going to, because he's never done that. He's never explicitly disobeyed a command by the Valar before. Uh, in mm. fact, nobody's ever done that in the experience of the elves. So right. to a, to a certain extent, it's almost parallel to, um, I mean, obviously it's different and in a sense, a much bigger deal, but it's like the taboo on the remarrying stuff, right? Where we were, t- where, where I was talking about, we need to make sure it's clear what a big deal this is. And the problem I was having was that really fit, f- Finway and Indus couldn't really get married. Like, just that wouldn't work if the if the taboo pre-exist, you know, predated their marriage. Right. So we had to kind of remove that in order to sort of have it establish the fact that this was a big deal. This in in this case too, we need to make sure that we really show this is a this is a this is a huge deal. So I, I'm not sure. I think there should be at least a little bit more dissent. Um, some of them. In particular, I'm thinking the kids, especially the kids, you know, the, the Feanorian sons, especially since we've been showing them being raised to martial pursuits, right? So the idea of um, the idea of the Feanorian kids being like, so we're going to war. Well, okay, you know, we're ready um, is fine. But people, somebody, Finway, Nerdanel, they can't be okay with this. They can't be comfortable with this. Um, mm. If he's gonna, if 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 they do in fact believe that he's not gonna go, they have to be ready to completely sell out for convincing him otherwise. Um, right. So. Um, okay. Yeah, I I think we I, I think we need to, uh, um, I think we need to make sure that if they do, at at the least some of them, like perhaps we have. Uh, Perhaps we have the boys say, oh, yeah, he's not going to go, you know, forget the Valar, right? And they're kind of yeah. they're kind of brash and, and, and sort of thoughtless about it. Finway and Nerdanel could be – I would think they would have to be in a different place. Um, one of the two of them could just not believe he's going to do it. Like, no, he'll go. He wouldn't actually. I know he doesn't like the Valar. Maybe this is Finway. Right, Finway's yeah, like, but he's not like going to actually point. defy him, right? And Nerdanel's like, you well, know what? I think he might. This is really bad. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, it would it would have to be it would have to be a really big, huge deal. So the idea that everyone's just assuming he's not going to do it, I, th- I think it can't be an assumption because it's too big a deal. Actually, now I'm thinking of it. Um, Finway just punched Feanor in the face. Yes. Um, he may actually be the one who's it, like it could be Nurnel saying, "Well, he's not going to actually right. defy the Valar, right. is he?" 
And Finway's right. like, no, I'm pretty sure he is going I'm, to do I'm, just that. I'm pretty sure he is, and if he is, I might have to take him over my <laughs> knee again. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I, I like that. That does that does make sense. Um, okay, so, but then he comes down and he sort of surprises all of them. So, so we're expecting this to be the big conflict, right? We're sort of setting up right. this huge confrontation where he refuses to go, and Nerdanel and Finway and the and the sons have this big. And instead, he comes down and he's like, "No, I'm going to go." So it looks like, oh, everything's fine, right? Um, uh, okay, all right. I like that. I love I love how you guys uh, uh, did. Um, because we got, we got, we did get uh, Ungoliant here. I like how you guys did the the human shape Ungoliant. That happened in this, didn't it? Happen in this episode twelve? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That wasn't our idea. That. Yeah. I'm yeah. No. Sure I, came I, out of the original discussion. <laughs> right. No. I, I. I remembered saying that, but I. Um. Um. But I definitely. I definitely liked uh, the way that it. The way that it came out. Um. So episode thirteen. Um, okay. and, oh, and as I said, I loved the whole uh, Idril handing out flowers and her coming up and approaching Fanor because she's never met him and everyone else is like kind of worried about it. And there's little Idril, who has to be barefoot, obviously, right? I mean, just make sure that's perfectly clear that Idril is barefoot at the time. Um, uh, I know Marie would never not make uh, uh, make make Idril barefoot, but uh, anyway. Um, Okay, so, so, episode thirteen. Marie is shocked that we got to episode thirteen. Um, yeah, but, seriously. Uh, I know, pretty cool, huh? Um, so, I like your the way that you guys were describing the attack on the trees with Ungoliant and the belching out of the darkness and everything. That all works really well. I loved the idea, which I hadn't really thought about. I loved the idea of Melkor wrecking the ring of doom um, while Ungoliant is, is, is feeding on the trees. Um, that's, I thought that was really fun. That was, that was, uh, and, and the idea of like the link, uh, you know, him leaving his probationary chain on Manway's broken throne. It's lovely. I, I, I really, I, I, I thought, I thought that was great. Um, yeah. So I thought that that stuff all worked, uh, all worked really well. Um, uh, the biggest issue I have, um, so yeah, again, as I said at the very beginning of the session here, I really, I, you know, I've, I've loved all these outlines. I think the story is really, really neat, uh, the way that you guys do this. Um, my biggest issue is Melkor and Forma, Melkor, Formanos and Finway. So I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to work this out here. Mm. Um, your proposal is that it be a surprise that he has the Silmarils? No I'll, I'll, yeah, because if he do, if we make it clear that he has the Silmarils, then there's no, there's no, there's no value to, there's no dramatic value to uh, Feanor um, choosing whether or not to give up the Silmarils. The choice is completely out of his hands, and therefore it's not important. But they don't know. I understand um, that they don't know that, but what I'm saying is that the viewer knows that. If the viewer knows that, it completely undercuts the dramatic value of that scene. Can't we just change the matter. timing? That is, um, can't we just make... I mean, so Melkor has departed, right? He uh-huh. and Ungoliant have taken off and, and in the midst of the unlight, 
and the Valar come down and they discover the trees and everyone's upset and so that we have the conversation with and I love by the way Feanor trying to chip in and help out right uh, yeah. and and having to, that, that 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 was neat um you know not just having Feanor standing nearby um uh okay so well it shows that he does care about this you know? yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, exactly. I like to, to to set up that it's a legitimate choice, like that he's legitimately torn when uh, when they ask him to give up the Silmarils. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so so why can't we then cut? To, why can't we have him be given the choice and choose to not give the Silmarils and then have Melkor breaking into Flaminos? Um. Okay. So. The earlier you have the that question decided, the lower the dramatic emphasis is going to be because you have to build up that kind of tension. Um, yeah, but it, I, I'm 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 just saying, like, it's not that it can't be done. Of course, it can be done, but it will it will definitely reduce the the how much impact it has. I I mean I. I hear that, but I mean, it kind which of is kind of what when we when we discussed this earlier, yeah. it's kind of like the whole the issue that we were having the whole time about what the climax is and and when the climax right. falls. Um, yeah, because when I asked what the climax is, I was asking, you know, what's the point where rising action turns to falling action? <laughs> There's some right. kind of in the middle, which is yeah. fine. At least I'm fine with its being in the middle. Um, uh, well, then it's not. But then you but then you can't have falling action the whole second half of the episode. Absolutely you can. Uh, Shakespeare oh. did it really well. And it totally, like the second half of Shakespeare's plays are totally not boring. Um, the point is ju- is that it's the turning point. It's not the, and there's still plenty of good stuff. It's not, like, again, falling action, I don't know. I mean, I have to say, this is something I've been noticing as I've been, as I've been going through, um, uh, as I've been talking about on social media, I'm in the midst of my uh, my my chronological Star Trek viewing, uh, which yes. I began last year in celebration of the 50th. I'm in mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine now, which I'm really loving and I'm really I'm really enjoying. Love um, Deep Space Nine. It's fantastic, wonderful story, wonderful storytelling. But something that I always notice, I like, it's really predictable. Like the timestamp of the plot shifts are really predictable. Like I can always tell, mm-hmm. like if, if I'm uncertain about where a storyline is going, all I have to do is, t- I, I, I watch them on my phone. All I have to do is yeah. t- touch my phone screen and see what timestamp we're at. And I'm like, Oh, okay. This isn't actually the climax. I thought this might be the climax, but this isn't obviously the climax. We still have a twist to right. come. And then the climax after this, because it's, right. there's still 12 minutes left in the episode. Whereas the, the, the final turn always happens at between six and eight minutes left in the episode. So, you know, and like, and, and I get that as a professor of, I like of, it, but right. I, I get that as a professor of English literature, that that seems incredibly formulaic to you. I get well, it. Well, limiting just to, I mean, the idea that that's the, I mean, it's a, it, it, it works. It's really cool, but it's not the only way to tell stories. You know, it's, it's, and, and I, I don't, so that, that's why I am unwilling to concede that that's how things must happen. I agree that it's a formula that works, um, but it's not the formula that works. And in any case, the difference between rising and falling action, I mean, it, it's, 
I, I don't know. I, I, I also feel like this is the fact that this is the culmination of the whole season matters a lot too. Um, if right. we have one hour of falling action at the end of, you know, 14 hours of season proportionally that, that seems uh-huh. to me sufficiently close to the end to justify yeah. it. No, uh, you know? Yeah. No, I, I get, I get that. Well, also keep in mind that the, that the thieves quarrel is certainly not falling action. Um, you know, like it's going to it, it's going to be bigger than anything that's happened no, pretty much see, throughout the entire here, season. I think we're defining those terms differently again, like we were defining climax yeah. differently. Falling action, yeah. I define as like the, the direction has been set. The ending is now inevitable. Um, you uh-huh. know, it's we are on the downward path, but that doesn't mean we've fallen off a cliff, you know, and we're just in midair before we crash and hit the bottom. Um, Yes, once Melkor has uh, that, Melkor's done. Like when he's taken, like the falling action for Melkor begins at the beginning of this episode, when he takes out the trees after the darkening of Valinor and the destruction. That moment when he destroys the Ring of Doom, and and that's why I love that scene because I love the visualizing of that. Um, This is Melkor in open rebellion now. No more, no more messing around. No more spreading rumors. No more. I'm going to try to undermine you. No, I am now like taking up arms against you. I am wrecking your throne and I am leaving a token of open defiance on your wrecked throne while I have destroyed the trees of Valinor. He's crossed the Rubicon, right? So it's done. Melkor's done. He is Morgoth already. The entire yeah. episode is falling action in that sense. That's how I define falling action. Right. It's all falling action for Melkor. Okay. It's all falling okay. action I... for Feanor after he makes that choice, which can which I'm totally fine with happening halfway through the episode. There's still lots to happen. Yeah, lots of big, huge, exciting events happen. Um, but that but we're 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 you know. We've 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 come off the crest and and we're 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 going down the track towards the. There can still be lots of dips and turns and things that happen, but we're gaining momentum towards the ultimate crash. At the end, we're still far away from the ultimate crash. But um, okay, well, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm I and I I understand all this. I, I'm just saying that the further up you move, the 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 withholding the Cimarils, the it's like there's no way around because as you build throughout the episode, you're building that tension. Okay, because that you, you you have to imagine that somebody's sitting there watching this. Right, I am, uh, I am. But see, again, right. tension doesn't just come from suspense, from not knowing what's going to uh-huh. happen. You know, tension yeah, I, comes I, from I, anticipation as well. Right, I, I agree, I agree, but then instead of anticipating Feanor's choice, people are anticipating the point at which they find out that Feanor finds out that the Simrils aren't there to begin with. Right. Um, you know, I mean, what if we moved it up, if we moved it up, um, and we compressed the um, the discussion about the Simrils, which we've... we've Notably, like you know, we've yeah, yeah. stretched it out over a yeah. long period, um, with the implication that there's other things being said that we're just not seeing. Right. Um, let's can we can we go? Th- I, this is such a long outline, of course, especially for this episode yeah. since it's a double episode. Right. Um, 
let me kind of map this out and make sure I have my head around the I so let's just do like a bare summary outline, right? So and I'm yes. gonna focus on part two. Because part one ends with uh Yavanna trying to save the trees and the the issue <clears throat> Yavanna has just brought up the Silmarils. Right. Right. Has asked we, him for the Silmarils, yes. Right, has just asked him for the Silmarils at the end of part one. Okay, so part two. We have um uh, we come back to that, and we but we have him not deciding, right? We have the build up and uh, Tolkas g- delivering his line and Aule delivering his line, and and then we cut to Formin. Then it, so then this, this is so I'm just again so, summarizing the way you have it. Then we cut to Forminos. Um, darkness comes to Forminos, and uh, uh, Melkor comes through the gate, um, and then we cut away, and we have uh, Olmo. Uh, trying to, like, hunt down Melkor. Um, we come back to Feanor, and we have him kind of... Uh, then we then we have him saying, no, I won't. Um, and then we have... Um, well, that, that happens a little bit further in the way that we that we have it on here. The, what we're talking about is oh, right. moving right. the refusal here just, of the ultimate refusal. Right. Here he's, he's just saying, it would kill me if I did. He's not definitely making his decision. Yeah. Right. Um, then we have again more Valar in pursuit. Then we have part one of the thieves' quarrel. Um, then we have Sauron stirrings of stuff in uh, in in Angband. Right as we're getting ready to receive him. Um, then we have the denial of the Silmarils. Then mm. the they go back. Then they decide to go back to Formanos. Um, we get the second part of the thieves quarrel. I'm skipping a bunch of like Valar talking and pursuing Melkor scenes. Um, yes. Then we have the finding of Finway's body. Mm-hmm. And then the two crowns. So, okay. Um, I skipped the, the, the now, quarrel part two, which happens right before that. Um, okay. The, now we, now in this version, we've actually moved up when we had originally done this. Um, because we were still operating under what we had uh, <laughs> taken from the previous discussion, we, um, we had stretched the the point where Feanor refuses to give the symbols all the way out into like the final act. Uh, it happened right before the thieves, the final depiction of the thieves' quarrel. Um, when when and then we had the discussion a while back where. It, Turned that we didn't have to have it quite so far back, and we moved it closer to the middle of the second hour to kind of give it um, like a central place there. Um, if we moved it up, but when we were discussing this, I was I remember saying I, I you know I don't think that we could move it up any further than that without um, without running into without running into trouble. Here's my question, though. I mean, uh, Marie was asking if we have him decide earlier on, you know, what do we have the Valar doing between there and the end of the episode? Um, but I. Well, it's all chasing down Melkor stuff. Right. There's plenty of chasing down Melkor stuff to happen. And by the way, I really liked the the whole, like, semi deputation of Olmo and, like, the, the Olmo Manway stuff was awesome. I loved the Olmo Manway stuff, where Olmo basically, yeah. this, this is the moment where Olmo is like. I'm going rogue here. Like I'm going to take it upon myself to like, 
you, you know, keep an eye on Middle Earth and oppose Melkor and uh, I'm going to be kind of working solo on this and uh, and Manway acknowledging that. And I, I love that. Love that stuff. Um, uh, however, the the outline as you guys have it now, you have Feanor in the midst of deciding for like 45 minutes. Yes. Um, yes. And that's, and like five other scenes are going on and like, and we return to a Zelohar and there's, uh, I, I, Feanor still going, um, uh, well, <laughs> still haven't decided. Check in with me again in another half hour. Right. I mean, like it's, Elvish perspective, Elvish perspective. <laughs> Elvish perspective, right, yeah. yeah. He stands there and contemplates for like uh, a week and a half. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that, that strikes me, frankly, like breaking up the scene that much, I think will mm-hmm. damage the, the dramatic effect of that scene far more than doing it earlier would. Um, now, Maria is reminding me that one absolute necessity is that Mandos is not the first line has to be delivered after the death of Finway. Um yeah, I agree. Um, I think I'm actually, I'm fine with how you guys did Formanos. And I mean, and of course you guys have Melkor showing up at Formanos prior to the, uh, yeah, prior to, the, to the, the denial. So that's fine. I don't actually, I don't, I don't insist on showing them in Melkor's hand prior to Feanor's um, refusal uh, to, to give them over. I'm fine with doing it that way. Um, I just think his... Well, he's got him. There's, there's no question he's got him. Yeah. At no that point. He's got him. Um, but if, if, if you know, if you, you know, once we, once we get to the end of the episode, we'll know that he's had them. Um, yes. And he had them before Feanor said, no, you can't have the Simrils. Um, but the viewer doesn't have to know that. Right. Exactly. Um, well, see, okay. I... This is where I, I'm going to argue again for expectation over suspense. Um, and I'm not really suggesting a change in the actual plotting of it, just a, a sort of the attitude towards it. Um, when I was talking about that, Marie was talking about how, you know, she was sort of reminding me that we're telling this story not from the perspective of history, but we're kind of bringing viewers along and the viewers aren't necessarily going to know what's happened. No, but they can anticipate. and that. But that's my point, is that... I find modern literature in general and then modern film and TV even more um, tends to be like the assumption everybody makes is that it, things have to be a surprise. I mean, it's like one of the mm. definitions of a bad show or a bad movie, right? If, if you could, if like, if, if somebody comes out of a movie and was like, yeah, but I from the beginning, I, I knew just what was going to happen, right? It, there was no surprise. That's mm. like a, a really damning thing to say about a film. Whereas again, that's but that's a very modern perspective, and I and it's it is a way that stories can work, and stories can be can affect you really powerfully if they take you by surprise. But that's not the only way that stories can affect you powerfully. The modern assumption that it's that no story is worth telling unless you get shocked and surprised along the way yeah. um, is a really I find it a, a a really pitiful kind of assumption to make. Stories where you know, the, I mean, remember in Sha- in in in, in oh, back to Shakespeare again. Um, mm. In 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 Elizabethan drama, they would do a 
they would often do a dumb show in advance. Like, you, you get the Cliff's Notes version of the plot first, then they put on the play. Like, they make 100% sure that you know exactly what's going to happen in the play, then they do the play, um, in yeah. order to prevent any possibility of surprise or suspense. Now, again, I'm, obviously, I'm not saying that that's how we do it, but the point is, you can indeed make a, a story that... So, so, back to the Silmarils. Where this is relevant, no, the viewers don't see... Melkor taking the Silmarils, but the viewers know that he's... They have not seen the Silmarils in his hand, but they're going to know, and we want them to know. We want them to know. We want to play on the irony when we've seen Melkor break in the gates of Formanos and Finway Mm -hmm. vainly standing against against him in a way that we know is going to be vain. But think about the double anticipation there, Right. The viewers have seen the Formanos scene. They've seen darkness sweep in and Melkor burst open the, the gates of Formanos and Finway bravely but vainly standing in his way. The viewers know. They know for sure. Melkor has killed Finway and he's taken the Silmarils, but they've not seen it, right? So, it's again, it's not about suspense. It's all about anticipation. And that makes the scene when he then refuses the Silmarils um, no, I'm going to keep the Silmarils for myself. Nobody else can have them. The weight of dramatic irony when the viewers know Melkor has already taken them. That is so much more powerful than mere surprise, right? Oh, turns out, guess what? You know, you don't have them after all. Um, the, when, when the readers feel the full weight of the irony of his statement at that moment, it's going to be much more powerful. And then Mandos's reference, right? The viewers already know. I mean, again, they didn't see it happen, but they are about 99.9% suspicious that Melkor has killed Finway, they don't expect Finway to have survived. And when Mando says, not the first, like the weight of doom that says, oh my gosh, he is really dead. I knew he was dead, and he is really dead, right? Um, that is so much better than just being surprised by a twist. You know, that's okay. so cool. I, I, I understand that. Um, I just want to, you know, reiterate that my focus isn't necessarily on the surprise I'm not. I'm not saying that people should be surprised by the fact. Oh no, Melkor's actually had <laughs> no, the symbols the whole night. I'm, I'm just. I'm just. I'm just trying to protect the focus of the of the question. Should Feanor give up the symbols or not? All right. Because if you if you if we know already for a fact, which we actually don't, that that Melkor has made off with the symbols. Well, no, we technically don't because it's possible we didn't show the fight between Melkor and Finway. It's possible that Finway led them on a merry chase, grabbed That's the Simrils, and took off. Nah, like no, the modern, I'm telling you, the modern audience who is not who does not know the story is going to be half expecting Finway to come strolling in, all messed up and bruised, with the Simrils in a bag at if the end of this episode. If they're thinking that, then they're thinking, then they should feel guilty thinking, because they would know. If that did happen, they would be like, that was really hokey and unrealistic, but like, I mean, that's... Uh, but that's done. That's, that done. is the thing that's done, done all the time. That's the surprise to, twist that people... Yeah, but that people dumb to think it. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I, I feel like it's an insulting the intelligence of our viewers for them to believe that... Fa- and, and, and what's more, it insults the memory of Finway to imagine that he, like... You know, sneaked out and led him on a high-speed chase. Um, I, 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 
I get that. See, but Lincoln, the ho- uh, Lincoln is pointing out that you know that if, if what if they're hoping against hope? No, exactly. That's part of the that's part of the thing. That's a good reason not to actually show him being killed in advance. That's well. That's what I'm saying is that people are still going to be holding out hope that he survived. But not real hope. They're going to want to believe, but they're going to know they can't. Yes, I, I understand. Yeah. But what I'm saying, yeah. what I'm saying is that it, is that 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 helps with the that helps to take the focus off of. Wow, Feyenoord is being an idiot. He's refusing to give up the Simrels. He doesn't even happen to not give up. Sure, exactly. But that's no, not I, the point. Of, that's not the point of that scene. It's not the point of the scene in the book. It's not the point of the scene that we should be trying to show here. I agree. But again, why can't we have that happen earlier? So back to the, l- looking at the outline again. Going back to what you guys have. Where is it? Act uh, five, right? Yes. We've just had. We've just ended the first half of the episode. With the question, right? Will you give up the Silmarils, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we kind of we kind of resume there, and uh, I'm fine with delaying it once, right? The, the first place where you break it, where Tolkas yeah. and Aule speak their piece, and he's like, you know, and Aule says, "Give him time to think." After Aule says, "Give him time to think," cutting away to the Formino scene is perfect. So Ali says, mm-hmm. give him time to think. Then the viewers go back to Formanos, and we see Melkor come in, and we see, and Finway has got to be awesome, right? I mean, he's got to be standing there, and he's got to be, it's, it's, you know, he's not going to, like, yeah. everything about Finway should be, like, you will, you will, like, break into this house over my dead body, but then we don't actually see the dead body. Which is um, exactly what's about to happen. Exactly, exactly, and it happens, yes. and, and again, yeah, we don't want it to happen, we're hoping against hope it won't happen, but we know that it happened. Really, but we don't show it. So anyway, so then, like, we cut away from Finway standing defiantly in front of the darkness. Um, whether we have another, uh, so like, you've got an almost scene in there. If I, I'm, not, I'm not objecting to that. But when we return to Feanor, he mm-hmm. needs to make his choice. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm he okay makes with his that. Choice, under under a certain amount first. of protest, but yes. Okay, well, but what I still don't understand exactly what we lose by doing that. We we lose a certain amount of of dramatic value to the, to to the choice. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. I'm I'm willing to accept this, and so. I'm not the boss here. So okay. like, I'm, I just I don't I don't I don't well I don't and again it's there, not, there, the, it, there have been things throughout the entire season that have that have happened that I haven't been super thrilled with. It's I okay. I know. Well, I, I, I think, okay, but again, I think it depends on the kind of moment that you're trying to make it into. Um, and the, the, the reason why I think it's not only okay, but actually good to have it sooner is that it's not a culmination. It's not like the kind of thing that always happens in the last seven minutes of Deep Space Nine. Instead, it's the turning point in the middle. And Feanor's, you know, Feanor's choices like what he's going to do the path his path is set but he still has some path to walk down um showing uh showing the consequences showing his grief showing him his decision which should be plain um but still only implied at the end you know when he is taking up his father's throne and about to do some really rash and unfortunate things with it um uh yes marie i want not the first to be followed by the decision yes exactly um and most of the Valar are going to be standing around the dead trees in that time. Uh, first of all, Marie, do you remember how long the Valar stand around the dead trees in the Book of Lost Tales? Oh my gosh, they stand around the dead trees forever. 
Um, so I'm fine with it, but we don't have to show them, right? We've got lots of other Valar running around doing perfectly industrious things, right? So that's okay. <laughs> I'm fine with that. Um, we just focus on the... So, And this is where I love the Olmo uh, outlay, or not Olmo outlay, the Olmo manway plot, right? Um, mm-hmm. To to Because this shows now, you know, we, we kind of pan back to the Valar and we show not just the sort of action sequences, right? Like Tolkas and Orome trying to trying to chase him down. Right. Um, but the the bigger you know so we have like the action oriented Valar trying to trying to to pursue them and failing. We show the uh, you know some of the, the leaders of the Valar, especially Omo and Manway, strategizing and saying like okay like you know Omo being like I'm going to take a different tack now I'm going to do this and Manway's like that's a good idea. So the Valar collectively speaking, the Valar are doing lots in this last forty five minutes. Um, there are a certain number of Valar still standing around doing not very much by the trees, but that's okay. Um, and I don't think, see, again, Marie, this is what I think, why I think that, you know, she's afraid that Manway is going to look useless. Um, this is why I love the Olmo Manway plot. Because it shows, like, Manway actually seeing the big picture. And, like, he yeah. doesn't have to actually perform an action. You know, he doesn't have to actually right. uh, do the running around and chasing himself um, but instead for him to be sort of acknowledging yes like this is uh, uh, this we are we are like we are now entering the next phase and and him talking to Omo about what needs to happen and showing that Omo is not working against manway in the things that he's going to be doing I think that's really I, th- I think that's really neat. So, um, yeah, Tony says Manway's behaving as a king. Exactly, he's not behaving as a champion. Right. He's behaving as a king, yeah. and that's fine. I'm, 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 I'm okay with that. I mean, remember, there's, there's, the, the, the kind of as far as Manway is concerned, the kind of elephant in the room in this whole sequence is. Uh, so that uh, letting him out on probation thing didn't pan out too well, did it? Like, kind of looks like the wrong choice in retrospect, right? I mean, if we want anything, I think maybe we need an extra Nienna scene with, uh, you know, the Manway Nienna scene here to kind of address yeah. that, maybe. But um, well, I think that was going to come out in season three. It's going to right. kind of Manway's perspective on this is going to come out a little bit more. Yeah. Um, the the whole almost the whole almost plot in this episode really came out of how. We had kind of developed almost almost like he might turn out to be yes. the main antagonist at some point, right? And to kind of bring that to a close, <clears throat> you know. Because right. if there's one thing I hate, it's bringing up plot lines and then just leaving them to hang there and yes. never addressing them ever again. Yes. Um, yes. Like the so having of the him, five armies. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or King Kong. He did it in King right. Kong too. It's right. Very right. irritating. Um, I don't know why anybody thought that that wasn't going to happen again. I, anyway. Um, I didn't see King Kong, that's the, why. Uh, but anyway, it, sorry, yeah. If you had seen it, you would know. You would have known right from the start. Anyway, um, but having but having Olmo, and, and in this action actually creates the Hilcaraxa, so when we come back to the Hilcaraxa, yes. we're going to know what that Loved is. That. Loved that, yeah. 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 Um, and, and for those who haven't read this, we created this whole other almost subplot that nobody else knows about. If you haven't read that, right? Yeah, and I hear I'm, I, I keep alluding to it, and we haven't summarized it or anything. But yeah, go, go and read it; it's really cool. Um, and and it really emphasizes, of course. I mean, we, we get the brief reference in the book of you know why he runs up to the north and everything. Like, why doesn't he just cross the ocean? Is a question that could be asked, right? By by a reader. Because almost there. 
because almost there and having none of it, right? So, um, right. but that's not explicitly said. Uh, you know, the, the the story in the Silmarillion talks about the pursuit by Tolkas and Orame, but it doesn't talk about, um, you know, that sort of the barrier of the sea and by implication of uh, of of Olmo um, and the way, the fact that like the crossing of the Helcaraxa is sort of, uh, you know, trying to do an end around Olmo and escape the barrier that the that the sea really is uh for melkor mm. i think that's i think that's great you know making that explicit and the way that that gets connected back as you said to the to the you know olmo as a rogue element uh subplot i i, I loved all that stuff i thought that that, uh, that that was all that was all really really cool and worked very well um um yeah good so um So, so, so it sounds like we're in perfect agreement, right? Everything is, everything, everything is fine. Everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I just, I still, I, I, I honestly think that the loss of dramatic effect by having it earlier is going to be less than the loss of dramatic effect by checking in on him two or three times and being, so have you decided yet? Fade no, not yet. Okay. All right. We'll come back to you. Uh, and get, I think, I think that's likely to undermine it even more. That yeah. is an ad absurdum argument, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I, I understand. I understand. Um, but uh, excellent, good. So I did like how you handled the ending um, with um, the the two the the two crowns. I thought I thought that came out really well. Um, with the making of the iron crown, um, his burned hand. Um, yeah, the repairing of the. Of the crown, by by Feanor, so we get the dual like crown forging thing going on. Oh wait, I had an idea. I I I, I almost forgot. Mm-hmm. Feanor remakes the crown, right? His father's crown is mm-hmm. broken, and he has to remake it. Yeah, he's going to yeah. change it. It's not going to look exactly the same. Okay. I have a suggestion for how it should look okay. different. He should put in the crown three sockets for the Silmarils. <laughs> okay. Because you know, Feanor, right. if Feanor had a crown, he would put the Silmarils in it. Right? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's like a 0% chance that he does not put the Silmarils in his crown if all goes according to plan. Right? If Feanor somehow becomes king and keeps the Silmarils, right? So we would have to imagine some theoretical, highly theoretical scenario in which his father died under peaceable circumstances and he, Feanor, retained the Silmarils. Obviously, he's going around wearing them on a diadem around his head anyway, so if he did have a crown to wear, he would totally, totally um, uh, put the Silmarils in his crown. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have to be good-looking sockets, though, because if oh, yeah. you've ever seen a ring with the gem removed, it's not particularly oh, yeah. no, no, no. Exactly. pleasing. Exactly. But it's clear that it's clear that the crown is in, is incomplete. Yeah. It should look incomplete, right? Um, yes. And it, because the making of the empty sockets in the crown declares his plain intention, like I am, I am king, but I am, I, I'm, I'm, I've got, I've, I've got to get my Silmarils back, 
right? Um, mm. And I have I have created it, and it also shows his arrogance, right? I, I trust that I am going to get. I'm not even going to wait till I get them back to put them into the crown. Mm. I'm going to make these holes for them to go in, so that as soon as I get them back, which obviously I am inevitably going to do. Uh, uh, I will have a place to put them. But, of course, it also establishes the really eerie parallel of the two crowns that they're making, yeah. right? The iron crown with the Silmarils in it and the golden crown, probably, right? Gold? Silver? What's his crown made out of? Anyway, not um, iron. It, silver seems, or platinum, yeah, seems something. the more likely... Yeah. Anyway, so we've got the shiny, precious crown of, of, of the Noldor um, with its empty Silmaril spots, but they can even be similar. I mean, they can even like be like the, 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 the sockets are in the same orientation. Like it, it, it looks parallel. He doesn't know it again, more dramatic irony. Right. But it looks exactly parallel to the iron crown that, uh, Mm -hmm. that, that Melkor has made. Yeah. Love that. I love that. I I think that's, I, I, I think, because again, it's clear, clear indication of like, you know, uh, Feanor barely needs to give his first like uh, kingly State of the Union address before it's pretty clear what he what his administration is going to be all about, right? Uh, which is returning to Middle Earth to uh, get his Silmarils back. Um, Mike asks, uh, "What I know? I know. I'm sorry. I just made everybody think about current events again. My apologies." Um, uh, uh, anyway, so. Mike asked what the fate of that crown is. Um, and Mike, yeah, I think Feanor is the only one to wear it. I don't think Fingolfin's going to wear that crown with the empty Silmaril holes in it. No way. I think Fingolfin has to get his own crown. It has to be made in such a way then that it would be... Because either he would have it on his person during the battle in which he fights, yeah. which seems unlikely, or it... Um, or it has to be fashioned in such a way that he can wear it with a helmet. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that was something Tony Mead was just suggesting that he could attach he could attach the crown to his war helm because we already would already have seen his war helm, right? The the helms right. of the Noldor are kind of a big deal in the text, right? So, um, yeah, uh, Tony is saying he could attach the crown to his war helm as well, um, which you know indicates his intention to go to war. And the whole crown as part of helm thing is a Tolkienian thing, right? We know this is what the this is what the Gondorian crown is like, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um. Because the idea of somebody just wearing a crown into battle is stupid. Right. Just being, just, just having a crown. Yeah, exactly. Um, Marie says it can fit As over somebody his who, Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it, it would, the problem is you can't have the same crown fit over your helm and your head unless your helmet is designed in a particular way. Which you'd have to be very, very careful with for it to not look stupid. It would have otherwise, to be the hell... looking pretty dumb. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's what'll happen exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it, either either it's just part of his helmet and he wears his helmet all the time, which is okay. Yeah. Um, but then you know I know actors hate wearing helmets, but um, <laughs> right. too bad. Right. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Or it it has to be almost like torque like where he can. Kind of, where it can be kind of stretched, right. in a way, right? Where he can like unblo- un like unhinge it from the helmet and put it on his head or something like that. I would be fine with him having it permanently attached, like to make it part of a helm. Um, again, yeah. as as Tony says, to indicate like I am a king, but I am a king at war. Like I am never going to be just wearing a crown and not 
battle gear as yeah. well. Um, he, he doesn't have to necessarily know that his helmet needs to have stuff covering his face yet. Right, exactly. And when the, when the, um, you know, presumably he would plan that, you know, when he did get the Silmarils back and won the war, which obviously he's going to do, right, because he's Fanor, um, mm-hmm. then he would reforge the crown into a peaceful crown. Right. Again. But, uh, uh, but yeah, yeah. No, I think, I, I think, I like that. I think that that would work. And yes, uh, who was suggest Tony was suggesting this as well, that uh, when he's killed, the Balrogs should take his crown and bring it to Morgoth. I agree. I think I think uh, Morgoth getting a good laugh over the Silmaril sockets in the crown I think would be would be fitting. Um, okay, cool, excellent, very good. All right, I think we've totally resolved all issues, and season two is looking good. Next time so two weeks from today we shall be resuming again to do casting so the nominations are in the voting has happened we will reveal the results of the voting we may or may not be exercising some vetoes uh or and i think there are some ties as well so uh we'll see how that goes um but looking forward to uh to doing casting next time and seeing if we can finally kind of put some put some faces and looks onto some of these characters that we've been talking about uh all the way through so that's going to be um uh that's uh uh that's going to be two weeks from now. Um, where we're headed after this, we'd like to do at least one or two design episodes afterwards, looking at um, uh, visuals and uh, music and uh, and talking about some of the things that uh, that people have come up with. So if you're thinking about doing design, whether it's costume design, thinking about making proposals for, um, uh, for sets and locations. Remember, we did some of that um, last time, uh, last season, I mean, in... in Season one, we can look at some images if people have ideas of what particular, um, you know, what some of the some some of the particular sites should look like and stuff. So we'll we'll spend some time looking at this kind of post production stuff as we go through the 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 works that people have come up with. So make sure to be uh, to be posting in the next. So it'll be four weeks until we do that episode. So you still have some time if you haven't finished uh, uh, coming up with stuff. So uh, definitely some time to, uh, uh, to 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 think about that stuff and we'll talk about. But okay, or next session, two weeks from today. So thanks very much, everybody, and I will say thanks for listening and Godspeed.